Hello and welcome to the Back Page, a video games podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts, I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how's your 18th UK bank holiday been in May? <laughs> Have you been filling it with good times, bad times, average times? I forgot that we completely missed the coronation because we were recording the Excel episode for this week. That's because, you know, my king is our listeners. So, you know, like that's <laughs> that's the only monarch that I, uh, I recognise. Um, yeah, I forgot about that too. And then I saw some... Was there something on Sunday, like some kind of weird variety show i was like saw tom cruise in an aircraft or something and i was like i suppose that's happening but uh yeah it's where yeah. prince charles sorry king charles has to um pretend to be interested in modern pop it's interesting because he's like a 74 year old man right yeah my mum has been like thinking a lot about sort of old age and she she keeps saying to me 75 is when you're done for basically so <laughs> indiana jones you know harrison ford is still kind of kicking and doing it but it's like I can't imagine the danger of putting Harrison Ford on like a horse. I mean, I don't think they did. I think they CG'd him onto a horse in that trailer, but you know. Yeah, I'd say that's the big difference between, say, Harrison Ford being Indiana Jones at his age and Joe Biden going for a second presidential run <laughs> at like 84, whatever the fuck he is. Because you can't CG Joe Biden's face onto another man's body and he can still do the job. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that's more of a Republican move, isn't it, than a Democrat move. But uh, I think yeah. even Americans would see through a CG president, you would hope. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, got big um, Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns vibes there. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, I don't know how we got, we got onto this topic. That's um, that's where I am at. That's my like forlorn Monday bank holiday energy of like, I've got a carry on with my life now. And isn't that sad? Because all I did all weekend was sit and play computer games in my underpants. It's morning, really. I'm mourning that for myself. Oh, but I've, uh, I've only got three days and then it's Zelda day, baby. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So you got a week off for Zelda, haven't you? Took Friday off and the following week. Wow. Yeah. So that's like, it's you know, a dream. Yeah, that's good. Ten so we'll... straight days of <laughs> Tears of the Kingdom. So we're going to do two giant men play Tears of the Kingdom. You're going to have played it for 85 hours. I'm going to have played it for six hours. It should be great. It should be a great episode. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I wish I'd taken that week off too. I was sadly slightly too busy that week. But um, no, I will, I will get some proper time in with it at some point. But I'm excited to hear mm. your thoughts, Matthew. This is the big one. Everything's been building up to this. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. This is a What We've Been Playing episode. People know the deal. We talk about some games we've been playing. Then we answer some listener questions. So, nice and straightforward. Um, always easy to put together for us to so give us a little bit of a pause. And, um, fortunately, me and Matthew have both been playing things. There's one thing we've been playing together, so we can talk about that. Matthew, our first game, we, we have both been playing this first game, Star Wars Jedi Survivor. The sequel by uh, Respawn Entertainment to 2019's Jedi Fallen Order. It has released to a lot of discussion about technical issues. I'm playing it on PS5, where if you put it in performance mode, it's it, sometimes it's okay, but a lot of the time the performance sort of tanks, um, frame rate going up and down. Um, the game generally doesn't feel unfinished to me. It feels like it's it's like it's not buggy or anything like that. It really is just the performance. So mm. it's a bit of a weird one, but it feels like that narrative has run away a little bit. Um, and I think that... It's a, it's slightly unfair in the sense that this is one of the best blockbuster sequels I can remember playing, and it's strange that this, the discussion is only ever going to be about frame rate now, and there are so many things this game does well. I think it's incredibly impressive from the Uncharted 2 school of sequel making. What do you make of this game? You know, I thought this might happen when we started getting into games that were current gen only, and people actually see the limitations of what the current gen is and how things look. I, I think like comparing this to, say, 
PS5 ports of PS4 games, which fundamentally Horizon and God of War Ragnarok are, you're bound to see some differences. But anyway, that's a that's a conversation for a more boring podcast. So <laughs> we'll we'll leave it with them. I, I think this is much improved over the first game. I think it's dialed back on some of the soulsy elements of the game. Like it has the same structure and as the first in terms of when you die you go back to sort of checkpoints and you lose your xp and you have to go back and find the enemy which was kind of the sort of soulsy element but this time i think the difficulty is like a little gentler i think the areas kind of loop background on themselves a bit more and i think there's a lot more forward momentum which is a much better fit for the kind of tone they're going for which is which is a lot more of a romp one of the odd things about Fallen Order was that the kind of bruising grind that comes with any sort of Souls-like game runs counter to the kind of go get em attitude of Star Wars. Right. You know, like, th- these are, this isn't a world where you have to fight hard for every inch forward. You know, it, it, it never quite kind of added up or made sense to me. By dialing back on some of some of that difficulty i think you can just focus on like the crazy set pieces the quite good characters you know a story which did pull me through and the kind of metroidy elements which are part of the the sort of soul genre too but here there's just a, a huge amount of powers that open up across the game and are constantly recontextualizing your relationship with the various maps the way this game works is it, it kind of has a central planet called Kobo, which is absolutely massive compared to any any area from the previous game. And you do leave it and go to some other quite substantial areas, but you're constantly returning to this place and it kind of spokes out into new areas as you get new powers. But I actually found the way they layered up that space and the way that they constantly drew you back and revealed new ideas in it was really, really nicely done. Like as far as 3D Metroid the games go i think this is kind of one of the better ones i've played yeah it's uh yeah so how it is is not open world as such it is you have about around the same number of planets as the first game and the structure is roughly the same where you end up going back to the same few planets over and over again to do different objectives but they give you new abilities to reach different places hence the metroidvania thing but Mm. the spaces are incredibly vast compared to those in the first game like Mm. you will you will be exploring for several hours and then it will tell you, oh, you've only seen 45% of fucking Kobo or whatever. And you're like, wow, okay. So there really is just so much packed in there. And I think that I agree with you that the Metroidvania structure is so well handled here that I don't actually, I didn't get into the mindset of like, oh, I need to see everything the moment I get into this planet. I was doing critical path stuff and then kind of letting my abilities accumulate. And it means that when you're kind of like good and comfortable, you can go and tick off each planet one by one, which I think is a good way to design it. So mm. I really like that about it. I definitely agree on difficulty too. So first game was quite tough in places. I certainly remember when um, you were fighting the, I can't remember the name of the planet now, but the uh, when you're fighting the Zabrak, the Darth Maul looking dudes, some of the like the gri- the combat Dathomir, grind there. was it? Dathomir, that's right, yeah. Could be incredibly just like difficult and frustrating. And I, I remember feeling that when i was playing it here i've sort of like i reckon i've probably died fewer than 10 times so far and i'm about two-thirds through the game maybe slightly further so i'm i'm certainly finding it a lot more comfortable i think that certain things have bothered me about the first game like the parry window which which i never felt like i could quite nail that feels spot on here i feel like i'm always parrying and getting it right 
Um, that's really, really nice. The combat is, I think, vastly improved across the board. They have new stances in there, so new Jedi mm. stances. So you can use like a you know single lightsaber. You can use two lightsabers. You can use like a, uh, the Darth Maul sort of double lightsaber. But you can also, in this one, you have like um, a blaster stance where Cal Kestis, your main character, carries a lightsaber in one hand and then like a blaster in the other, and the blaster's ammo replenishes based on your performance in combat, essentially. And so it mm. means you're doing these combos where you'll swipe with the lightsaber and then he'll do this like quite cool hand motion as he sort of like over the shoulder shoots them with his pistol and mm. it feels almost like anti-star wars in a, in a certain way because jedi don't use guns generally speaking but um i think it just makes for it feels like a combat team that's really come into its own and found a found like new and exciting ways to experiment with their combat system and mm. to make you as a player find the style that really suits you and they've also added like a cross guard uh, lightsaber stance, which is like um, <clears throat> the sort of Kylo Ren. There's a little, oh, two, yeah, two I little beams. The really heavy one, right? That that's, that's what it that's, feels about. That's, fa- that's my favorite one because I think with that one, like if if you get really big into like the parry and evading game, like another mechanic actually they've added to this is um, you can still do evasive dodges because there are kind of red attacks that are unparryable but if you don't move and press block just as an enemy attacks you sort of do like a little force sort of shift a little kind of weave out the way and then you're still right up in their face and i actually found that once i kind of got my head around that the combination of parries and that means you don't really ever have to move you can just kind of sort of stand and let everything come at you deflect things parry things dodge the, the couple of things you can't parry and then when you've got the cross guard you can just give them such a walloping like it's it's so powerful that when it does get an opening i just found it was like the way to go for me maybe this is the kylo ren association but it feels kind of angrier and more aggressive than the others it's got like real kind of sort of intent behind every hit which i really like yeah it's certainly um also that's where it makes it feel more like a souls game than ever where you know my my experience of souls games is like picking a fucking heavy weapon and then watching my dude very slowly um twat like a big monster with it before he (laughs) inevitably gets like squashed by a deeply unfair <laughs> aoe attack and i have a tantrum and turn it off but obviously it's a lot a lot kinder this game uh the soul cycle <laughs> <laughs> yeah for um yeah two giant petulant men that's how we play souls games <laughs> but um yeah there's there's loads of other ways in which it's improved as well i don't really remember what the platforming was like in the first game but here they've put a lot of effort into giving you different sort of mobility options so you do a lot of wall running which i know is in the first game as well and like there's occasional sliding down sort of like um gravelly uh, cliffs um there's a lot of that in the first game too but there's also they've added this um there's like a grappling hook so you can sort of shoot onto certain surfaces um one one thing that you add that I really like is you can do a sort of like a mid-air boost and to um which gives you even more flexibility to to move around and then there are even sort of other options they add later into the game um to to kind of give you new ways to get around the environment and i think it, i liked it because I've definitely like griped about this before, but I'm not big into games that have platforming where you just hold down one button and never actually do any jumping. I think that's yeah. like, that's not really platforming, in my opinion. Um, but this game is not like mega, mega complicated, but it does actually require skill. And that's true of the whole game, really. It's not that hard, but it does require you to actually pay attention. It's not playing itself for you. Um, mm. And so it really hits that blockbuster sweet spot for me, Matthew, of, you know, it's 
it is challenging on some level. I'm being stimulated by it, but also it's not so difficult that you can like hand it to someone's kid and be like, yeah. you can't play this. I think it really threads that line nicely. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I agree with that, definitely. I, I think something else the platforming does, because he just has, by the end of the game, quite enormous range. You know, when you combine his double jump with like this dash and there's a, there's another jumping power that comes into it later, which which I quite like. He can cover quite big gaps and it allows them to build out these these physically quite huge spaces mm. which i think really suits star wars and really suits the kind of alien environments like there's some areas where they can do some quite cool like aerial sections or sections where you're in these like huge sort of vertiginous structures looking down or you're kind of jumping between like rocky outcrops at the top of a mountain and it's a bit of a basic observation to say when you jump further you can have like bigger more impressive looking gaps but that is part of this game's visual dna like it just the levels feel big because you move far and i i I really like that there's a quite a big kind of platforming boss encounter that's more of a kind of platforming set piece i guess where you're kind of escaping this big thing you're covering so much real estate to get away from it which i always love when a game does that like when a game's kind of like see this whole kind of three miles of virtual level we're gonna trash that in two minutes i always think that's kind of (laughs) someone really kind of uh, bringing out the checkbook and just throwing away some assets on on (laughs) on a piece of uh excellent set piecery i love that about it but i think that what's great is that scale also applies to some of the puzzles as well so you'll have these really vast feeling puzzles which again not that complicated but complicated enough that you have to think about them a little bit and sometimes these puzzles will just span these quite wide spaces and Mm. they feel like set pieces in their own right which is really impressive yeah i agree with you i think something i really like about the way they particularly do metroid vania type level design is that like you say you'll see look up into sort of the skybox and you'll see different landmarks and you're like i wonder what that is and then inevitably the game will eventually take you there and you'll kind of see what the deal is and Mm. each one will kind of feel like a a level in itself essentially like the self-contained sort of like you know exciting set pc narrative driven sort of like affair essentially and so Mm. i think that the structure's really working because you have that blend of the metroidvania stuff with more trad naughty dog style set piece design it just it's just a really nice melding of like oh we built this amazing level it just happens to be inside a much larger kind of like a meta level essentially Mm. and so yeah i think that's it's just really really working well and it's much better than if this was an open world game i think it's it's sort of like yeah it's past to follow and past that will reward you and it is exploration but it's not exploration in the box ticking sense so really yeah finds that line nicely it's it's like the difference between a game that could could have been 70 hours long probably feeling closer to 40 you can probably charge through the main campaign in 20 sub 20 if you want and just have a quite a different experience i'd imagine i think it would feel like more of a cinematic blast from start to finish but Mm. if you are into the backtracking and using powers to uncover secrets and stuff it's it's so densely packed it doesn't feel like you're having to travel for miles just to like pick up one little doodab what the powers unlock they make sure there's a lot of it always in the map you can sort of move from like revelation to revelation quite quickly yeah i completely agree it's funny because I don't really have many complaints about this game. Like, my only real complaint... In fact, I wouldn't even call it that as such. The the, the area of the game where I wasn't as moved by it as the first one is the story. Because something this game's story does... So, you know, you may remember from the first game that you are this Jedi on the run, essentially. You get this. You find this sort of, like, surrogate master 
and the game's main villain was a failed apprentice of this master essentially who was you know now part of the dark side and i thought that conceit was really nicely done really well explored and executed um and the cow was quite a, a well a well-rounded sort of like it was just interesting to peel back the sort of weird survivor guilt he had and you know just sort of like what what his life was like on the um on the run from the empire after order 66 and i thought it weaved into the star wars storyline re- sort of overall arc really nicely without necessarily meaning that he has to have he has to like his presence isn't distracting versus the rest of the canon he sort of like fit around it quite nicely in this one so they do something which i think is quite close to like a branding exercise because in the last few years lucasfilm's been big on this the high republic era of um star wars storytelling so it's mostly taken the form of like a bunch of books and comics so far and it's been like pretty well received on the whole and there's a tv show called the acolyte coming out which i've definitely talked about before in this podcast which is also set in the same time period that was um the sort of like more martial artsy looking one they showed at celebration looked pretty good this game even though it's set in between the two trilogies still between revenge of the sith and a new hope it does this thing where it kind of has a villain unfrozen from amber basically and he was in the high republic era and they talk a lot about the high republic era and i feel like if your game is not set in the high republic era it probably shouldn't be about it and so i think that's like a storytelling weakness of this game is that the overall arc of like this dark Jedi you're hunting down, Dagangera, is quite weak um, compared to the overall arc in the first game. However, I do think that the writing, the dialogue writing, and the characterization generally is extremely strong. This is a game of good hangs, a lot of good hangs. Yeah. Um, and uh, like it's it's yeah, it really works in that level. It's just the overall narrative I couldn't quite get along with because that High Republic thing was distracting to me. I was like, you know, this okay. fucking Darth Vader's out there, man. Like it's just you know we're in the the times of the empress hunting down like the jedi we don't i don't think it needs to be about another era just to promote a bunch of books basically which is kind of right. what i felt like when the high republic came into this maybe you didn't feel that as someone who's less engaged with star wars yeah no not not really um i kind of feel you on the there are bigger threats out there and this is a game that can't really deal with them because where it fits in the timeline you know, we know that Cal Kestis isn't going to like find and kill Darth Vader. Right. You know that isn't just that isn't a thing that can happen. So they almost have to keep them away from all the key players, and it is quite self-contained, which I like. I will say, I know I'm not going to spoil it, but in the third act, I think mm. there's some really, really good classic Star Wars stuff that kicks off, which is really, really good fun. And I actually kind of clicked into the story a lot more then though though actually and we talked about this before on the pod like i wasn't crazy about fallen order story like i didn't really like any of the characters and it didn't really none of it really resonated with me and i don't really remember a lot of it and even though i'm told apparently it's great um (laughs) but those same characters do return in this game and i just i found them infinitely more likable um maybe it's because the nature of your relationship was established in the first game and here you can just skip to like them being good hangs Hmm. but it has it has quite a few stretches where you're paired up with a second character there's this like um kind of like mercenary guy called bodakuna who's really good fun and um merin from the first game i love the stuff with Cal and Merrin in this game. I thought it was I it was really, really nicely drawn. It was quite kind of sweet, the nature of their relationship. 
I really like them fighting together. It was just cool because she's got all this like weird green magic shit she does and you've right. got your Jedi powers and it really feels like two people tag teaming to bring down things which are a lot bigger than them. That's probably where the game's like at its most Uncharted-y. You get to spend quite a lot of time with her and have quite a good couple of adventures with her which I really like. I, I actually thought it did quite a good job of placing it between those two trilogies. Probably better than a lot of other things which are set between the films which a lot of spin-off shows and books and comics or whatever are I, I sometimes feel like oh well, I can see how this becomes one or I can see how it came from one thing but in this one there's a lot of like remnants of the original trilogy and that it brings in like the droid enemies from the Clone Wars yeah but it also has the classic stormtroopers and it, it really does feel like better placed between those two eras it, it feels like a a kind of an end of one thing or the kind of degradation of one thing and the kind of rise of another thing and I, I thought it's, it's one of the more successful like wider Star Wars projects for that reason yeah I think I agree with you on on that level because it allows them as well to delve into this quite wide range of potential enemy types as well which is yeah I would say that every single enemy type in this was like really well designed I thought really well judged mm. and challenged you in different ways and um, there is uh, there is like one enemy from the Clone Wars era that wasn't in the original game that is done here. I think it's executed here better than it was in any other Star Wars game. And I thought it was a really nice addition. So without spoiling what that is, because I think it is meant to be a minor reveal of the game. So I'll let people discover that. The Ooh. battle droids are funny because they're um, they are they're like you will hear them talking all the time. And the characters keep making reference to the fact of like, why do they program them to talk? And they're just like having right. these conversations. And that's really good. That's someone who's obviously like a lifelong Star Wars fan who uh, wondered yeah. what was going on there. Um, yeah, so I agree. It means that you have like these droids who are basically owned by mercenaries who are just like, you know, rolled out to um, sort of patrol. And then you have yeah, the stormtroopers who just obviously are part of the Empire doing their thing as well so yeah it just means that you just have this massive range of different enemies and they mm. all yeah they all challenge you in different ways you'll fight entire clusters of them they'll um throw these extremely op grenades that you'll be able to just like force push back into a bunch of them yeah, and they'll all yeah. die at once and it's actually not it's actually not afraid of letting you find shortcuts to take out all of the enemies as well that's what i like about it as a combat experience it's not like fucking dark souls where they're like you have to just prove yourself oh to, yeah, yeah to from soft that you can do this it's the, much uh, more like wouldn't it be fun if you killed seven enemies in like one go because you did something quite quite smart um yeah and that's there's cool. a like you've got like a jedi mind trick kind of confusability yeah and that is so overpowered if you pump all your skill points into that there's several areas where it'll drop two things which would be horrible to fight kind of au naturel but if you um turn one of them to your side and let them do most of the work like you can you can get over most of the difficulty spikes in this game quite easily which which i really liked and it didn't feel like i was cheesing it just felt like i was engaging with the systems properly dark souls never gives you those workarounds it's like deliberately designed to avoid (laughs) any kind of like easy outs but just giving you a couple here if you discover them i think is really smart yeah absolutely and i think as well that the even the stances can be quite shitty so the blaster one is just great because you'll have these moments like Raiders of the Lost Ark with the the guy with the sword who Indiana Jones just sort of shoots. And they, <laughs> yes. you have that you have those moments all the time in this because you'll just come out of a lightsaber battle. There'll be like one stormtrooper left, and he like he's about to run at you with like a fucking electric stick or whatever, and you're just like eh, and then you blast him in the head, and he's dead, and you're like that rules. It's not it's not really um sort of like sporting in the Jedi sense, but it's <laughs> it's, it's 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 a Star Wars a specific Star Wars fantasy I've not really seen in before where it's like you know. 
we thought it'd be fun to put a bit of Han Solo into this Jedi stance, and I, I just yeah, I, I, yeah. That, it really works. And yeah, it's um, what a game, man! It's just really, yeah. really good. It's like this is this is great blockbuster game design. I'm just yeah, g- incredibly impressed by it. Big grin on my face the whole time I'm playing it. You know, Ooh. so really good. Um, but it sounds like I've got more yet left to find, Matthew. So uh, oh, I think you've got the best bits yet. Fuck. Okay, let's see how much of it I can get in before I have to get on a three-hour train to Cambridge today. We'll see how it goes. Um, cool. Anything else to add on Jedi Survivor, Matthew, or should we move on? Uh, it is dumb that there's unlockable beards in a box. But, <laughs> you know, what can you do? Yeah, the, one of the first ones you find is like a mullet by a lake, and I was there thinking, this is really, really daft, but they were also smart to get the mullet out of the way really early in the game, because it can never be funny as, as funny again after that. Oh, but, there's something about you're in an imperial base and you've just done a really difficult combat encounter to get access to a crate and it's got a goatee beard inside <laughs> or like a handlebar moustache and you're like, um, why is this here? You know, that's <laughs> that is baffling the 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 notion of the empire storing our collective knowledge of facial hair. But um, were, were you aware of all the what the poncho jokes refer to in the game? Because it's quite a few. Yeah, the first game, it was basically like unlockable ponchos or bust. Yeah, and like some of them looked really bad as well. Some of them looked alright, but most of it was like a a big pink one where it was like that's I don't know. It was it was not necessarily the right look for Calcestis IMO. Um, But here I'm not even (laughs) engaging with the customization really. I'm just sort of like. Oh, if I mess with BD too much, will he still look like BD? I'm not sure he will, so I've just sort of left right. him on default. Apparently there's quite a big, well, I going to say quite a big movement, but that makes it sound more important than it actually is. There's there's quite a lot of people online digging the lightsaber customization, and cause it's not just the individual parts, but it's like the texture and the colour and how worn each individual part is. And, you know, you can probably make, this is probably like the best lightsaber construction simulator there's ever going to be yeah and given that people spend whatever 300 400 quid to go to star wars land and build their own lightsaber i can <laughs> i can understand why they've really doubled down on that i just mm. think it, like as a metroidvania challenge reward pulling off a really difficult bit of platforming only to get like a pommel like <laughs> it's just i mean come on <laughs> Your heart just can't race for a for a pommel. <laughs> yeah, of course. So um, to allude back to an earlier point that Matthew made on our Star Wars episode, just um, you know, for for diversity's sake, it's just great to see a gingerhead main character in a video game, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you oh, can shave it all off if you want. That's true. You can also make it super long. Some of those hairstyles really don't suit him that they put in the menu, but uh, you know, who am I to judge? So uh <laughs> yes. Um very yeah, very successful. Another another great um Star Wars game from Respawn. So and uh, if they don't if they don't make a third one, um that would be a shame. Uh, but also whatever they make next will be fucking amazing, I'm sure. I, so, you know. I I I think I think they got a third one in them. I think they know what they'll do if they make a third one too. So oh, that game could be absolutely incredible. Um so yes, this is like maybe you know, I really enjoyed the first game, probably to the extent that it was like a like a high 8 for me, but it's like a definitely a 9. This is, you know, this is exactly the kind of there are, these are these are weirdly elusive these days these kinds of blockbusters these particular single player blockbusters that are not open world games but mm. really hit the spot okay good stuff Matthew then so our second game is Arking Studios Redfall which has become a lightning rod for a bunch of different Xbox related conversations not too interested in getting into those but you and I have played a whole bunch of this well we played like two hours of it yesterday basically <laughs> and. I think we both came to the same conclusion, which is this is a game that's sort of for everyone and no one 
in in a lot of ways. It's like it's when you're playing it by yourself, it's kind of sort of pretends it's a stealth game in some ways, um, or it pretends it's an immersive sim um, a little bit. But what it comes down to is basically like quite a weightless Left for Dead alike, where you're going across this open world map that's okay, got some like got a few cool interiors in there. You can always depend on Arcane for that. Um, basically, just killing cultists or vampires in this la- this world that's been trapped by this like giant sort of like water wall, basically this sort of tidal wave that's surrounding it. And it was not a particularly inspiring experience. And it's I think the surprise there comes from the fact that Arcane is responsible for so many of the best modern games that it's kind of a shame. So the the technical like the, the performance stuff didn't really bother me that much. I think it was more the fact that there were mo- places where the game felt unfinished. You see enemies sort of scooting along on the ground without animation. Um there's uh. <clears throat> the 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 game's got like a kind of a story element, but they're all told through like these motion graphic cutscenes, which I think is feels like a step down from the way the story's been presented in previous arcane games. Um, and also the uh, <clears throat> the narrative and the world don't have a lot to be for you to be interested in. I think even going back to Deathloop, Deathloop was really good at making you invested in that world um, and exploring that world and un- uncovering all those characters were. Even though, come to think of it, it didn't have a lot more going on in terms of actual narrative presentation. Like it was pretty, uh, it was pretty much you know, a lot of it was told via like you know voice or audio tapes and things like that. But this game doesn't have what Deathloop had which is that incredible environmental design that tells you the story of the place or the pe- or the people you're sort of mm. tracking down it feels like if you'd have told me this was if i had been given this game to just play without knowing who the developer was and someone asked me to guess the developer i don't think i would have even guessed it's arcane which i suppose mm. is probably the most damning thing i can say about it what did you make of it matthew from our session i just kept bumping into things which made me think this was kind of doomed from the beginning, which maybe sounds a bit extreme, but the co-op element of it and the multiplayer element of it just runs so counter to what Arcane's strengths are. Co-op, to me, is a, is like the forward charge. It's friends messing around. It's players who you have no control over, basically, and you can't guide their eye, and you can't rely on them listening, and you can't rely on them taking their time. They're certainly not taking their time. So, like, when you see classic arcane tricks in this, like, loads of readable materials, which have got all these, like, lore cuts, and they may be beautifully written, but I'm not spending a minute to read something when Sam's talking to me over a headset or a friend's running off. As a co-op experience, arcane strengths, which is take your time and drink it in, that is just not what co-op is about. And that they haven't identified that as a, a problem, uh, that needs to be addressed super early on in the core concept of the game. I, I I just couldn't I couldn't really believe it. I just feel like it was sort of built to fail because of that. The powers aren't interesting enough. I was playing as Jacob, who's like this sort of sniper guy, and you know the first thing he has is a bird that marks enemies on a map. I mean, very very boring. You've got a little cloak thing, but like anything that hints at stealth in this game is wasted because the AI just isn't there to support a stealth game. People can't don't notice stuff if stuff's going wrong. If it all kicks off, like it's one of these games where like every enemy in like a one mile radius will become activated. There's no subtlety to it. 
fights never take off. Like, we never knew what we were meant to be doing at any time. Like, the story was so lost in the way they were telling it or the, what you were meant to, like, glean it from. I have no idea because we, we always knew kind of what we were meant to be doing. We never knew why we were doing it. And we found ourselves in this quite big story beat where we got, like, pulled into this doll's house. And the both of us were just like, what the fuck are we doing here? Like, like... <coughs> you know this could be cool like the idea of a level where you're doing something and then there's a twist where you get pulled into a kind of like a weird visual realm that feels like a classic arcane move but actually it's like you have a boring fight in a house you get pulled into a doll's house and you have a boring fight there too it's just so sad to see people who who just feel completely mismatched with the material they're working on i just i i don't get it at all i just couldn't i couldn't really recommend it to anyone not on the grounds of like there's anything like heinously broken it's just it's just so bland i played a little bit more of it after our session yesterday and it's not like i i don't like actively dislike it as such it's just there's not one part of it that's really easy to love and yeah the, the main missions just don't have that inspiring quality of oh wow here we go and do the thing also we had a few objectives that we were given um which were very much in the vein of classic open world tick box objectives where did we end up in this by the same burning helicopter like three times trying to like find various crates or something yeah yeah like the story mission took us to these two places and then we picked up a side mission and it took us back to those same places if it was procedurally generated it's fucked if it wasn't procedurally generated i have no idea why why that mission is there and so close to that first mission (laughs) yeah yeah and sort of there was also other strange things about the open world like this there's quite a lot of big empty spaces in between landmarks where like it may be you start to realize why open worlds are as condensed as they are for the most part like you it's because you end up like there's no vehicles you're just doing a lot of walking on like big highways and it's a bit strange i mean like the the little downtown bit with the storefronts and stuff that was quite cool as a space um i quite like that but yeah it doesn't have the immediate the world is the star element that say you know prey from the same developer did back in 2017 it's that thing of like look how incredible this this um <clears throat> this world is and back on the narrative presentation thing as well yesterday i was reminded of the incredible opening to prey where you're in the helicopter flying over the city and then obviously turns mm. out to be an illusion and that amazing mick gordon music plays and then you like break through the mirror there's just this game just doesn't have that you just sort of like turn up at a fire station and then like talk to a lot of npcs and then it's suddenly like off we go time to do lots of like box ticking missions just quite strange um yeah but also it doesn't feel like a game that's going to be like significantly changed by patches to me it might just be this is just kind of what they've got and that's sort of it really the review which really nailed it for me and i thought um was uh jeremy peel wrote about it and obviously like a huge arcane head i really trust him on this and the, the sort of the sense of disappointment was really palpable in that review you know, he was liking it to, to Far Cry, but he said compared to Far Cry, you know, it doesn't work as a stealth experience because it doesn't have a stealth takedown move, mm. which is just such a flaw. Like, whatever you think of Far Cry, actually clearing out an outpost and the skills that you unlock to let you, like, pounce on someone and then throw a knife at someone and then drag someone into the bushes is really powerful. And it's we would laugh at that and say that that was a basic stealth experience compared to maybe the stealth experience of a Dishonored. But yeah. compared to Far Cry, this is, like... It just doesn't even register as a stealth game. Like, it's, it's like they've forgotten everything in a genre which... They invented, like, a lot of what's good about that genre. You know, the people behind this game. It's It's... It's just an action game. And so any power which is about, 
like positioning or getting the drop or getting you up high so you can see down it doesn't matter because once it kicks off it will be the same boring firefight over and over and over again it's um if you can find one like the map's so empty what what a mistake yeah. the thing is each of the four different characters have different dishonored style abilities and so you have you know my character um the triple threatened student debt or something she she can do this thing where she puts up this like barrier that can absorb damage and then she'll sort of like reflect the damage back at people kind of like a bide attack in pokemon it's an example i can think of but she's also got something where she can create like a, a little kind of elevator thing which basically just gives you like a little air boost which there are a couple of missions where it was quite useful to get into a building using that um where that was kind of cool and there's also um she can also summon her vampire ex-boyfriend who'll come and attack enemies my problem with it was that i think those powers needed to make more of an immediate impressive impression than they do because you have like the weakest possible versions of them and then there are upgrade trees to make them more powerful but i think that it just means they all feel a bit underpowered and i wasn't using them that much and i was just like fire 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 stake the vampire staking a vampire that's pretty cool matthew that's a good interaction they got in there i think they've yeah. like captured that buffy style yeah. that's the buffy style element but that you're right though it, it, stealth it, you know to have it play in stealth you needed something like that but in stealth mode um when you kill the human enemies you need to like do a throat slit if it's vampire enemies you needed to be able to like stake them from behind or something so yeah, it does lack that but the game still pretends it's kind of a stealth game because you'll see enemies have little question marks and stuff and it's like yeah. it's not really though it's not really and, a and, and when it sort of says you know this line of like oh it's still an arcane game because there's several routes into every building but one of those routes is like go through the front door or climb up the ladder next to the front door and there's just a hole in the roof and it doesn't matter because once you're inside you're shooting the same three guys anyway like there's there's no reward for playing it differently there's no like big narrative reveal or like clever narrative twist if you do it one way or the other that that design just feels so hollow without that core tension of like am i gonna get caught like that is i i just don't think their whole deal makes sense outside of a stealth game because in an action game like you go in all guns blazing either way so it doesn't really matter from which direction you come not really <laughs> we just had so many bits where really bad signposting in levels or there was a, there was like a level we, we took on this mission where it was like you have to go and hunt the king vampire of this area and we were like oh okay this is gonna be good and he's got like it's a named vampire it's called like the fucking the suburbs killer or something yeah and it's in this house and you come into this house and you're like oh shit he's gonna be here somewhere and then we couldn't find him and everything was pointing us down to the basement so we went down to the basement and there was just no vampire there it just felt like it had broken it actually turned out he was in a tiny little room which was like in a shadowy corner of the basement that was so easy to miss that i was in there for like four or five minutes running cycles of this house going there's no fucking vampire in here. Look, we found all its audio logs so we could hear hear what its whole deal was. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, we found all these documents being like, you know, the classic, oh, I feel myself changing. I hope I don't kill my family or whatever. And you're like, well, what, what, who wrote this note? Like, I want to kill that guy. Uh, <laughs> and if you have to go looking for like a boss, if you can't find him, by the time he turned up, the whole thing was so deflated. And we were like, oh, here he is. And then we just shot him like three times with a shotgun. And that was it. That's the other problem with it. Like the vampires don't feel like a big event in any no. way. Some of them are as easy to kill as the common human enemies. What was the deal with that vampire who had like some kind of weird destiny style blue barrier shit surrounding oh, him as well? That was yeah, confusing. that sucks. There was this one in the basement. It's always in the basement of these games. Uh where you yeah, we found one and it just had like 
it, it had a slightly longer health bar and it had these like blue shields that spun around it, but they only covered like 50% of its body anyway, so you could mm. just empty shotgun blasts into its feet or whatever. And <laughs> I think that the moment we both burst out laughing at just how fucked this game was, where there was just a f- vampire chasing after us in broad daylight, yeah. and it was like, oh. I think that is meant to do that, though. I think it's meant to be like they've caused an endless night, but it just happens to be daytime sometimes. Like I don't, I don't quite get that pre- part of the premise. Right. But, well, yeah. e- either way, it felt like that feels like it's up there with the James Bond game where someone says, "What's your name?" and he goes, "James Bond." Uh, <laughs> in terms of like, just did not understand the assignment. Yeah, it's it's a weird one because the vampires as well, like they are the enemy I noticed the most, like without having like really sophisticated animation they would just scoot along the ground they just sort of slide around and it just meant that it deflated them even more because you know they are like slightly harder to kill than the human enemies because you have to use the stake to kill them or some kind of fire weapon to, to 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 kill them but it's just when they would turn up scoot around and then they'd just be yeah they'd just be gone and be like oh i guess that was that then i think the other thing is that there's a there's a few ways in which this feels like someone making their first proper co-op game which is like when i went back to my game after doing i think like three or four story missions with you a fair mm. chunk a fair chunk of the story i think it is i um went back and that progress did not count in my game so i was right. back on that ship at the very start of the game and i think the game needs to at least go once you've caught up to like where you got up to in sort of co-op when you when you kind of come to those missions it needs to say oh it looks like you've played this before like do you want to play it again because if not we'll skip to the next mission and that feels like something something very basic i expect from a co-op game to like recognize my progress playing in someone else's game you got mm. i got to go back with all my experience and all my guns that was good it made like it a bit quite easy to go through the first few missions but it's that thing of like oh, i've already done this mission and i just have to do all of everything we did yesterday for two hours i have to do again in my game and that's where yeah. it's like that's not ideal the other thing is it apart from like when someone's down and you revive them it doesn't have an overt amount of like it doesn't really have any meaningful cop mechanics. So I was talking to you like, oh, how come when there's like not, not like, like two players, there's not like some kind of vampire where like one of you has to like hold the vampire down while the other stakes them or something like a more powerful variant or some some yeah. kind of en- some kind of enemy that requires two people. Um, but it doesn't have anything like that really. It's just it, it's just the same stuff, but there are two people there basically. That's kind of what it feels like. So yeah, yeah. I don't, tell you what though, I, in spite of all that, I don't actively dislike it, and I'm even kind of curious enough to like see the end of it. I sort of want to see it through Ooh. a little bit. It's like eleven hours long, and I'm like, I think I could do that. I think I could get through that. I didn't want yeah, to have to play the same missions again. It's like there's no part of it that greatly offends me. It's just like it's just not, it just feels like a missed opportunity, you know. I can't say I'll be going back to it. I don't think that's um, fair. You know, but it's not. A, it isn't. It isn't said with glee. The problem with this, this happens a lot in games these days. Is the second like anything mainstream slightly shits the bed, it definitely gets amplified by everyone jumping on it. You know, like the mega dunking on Twitter, all the hate preach- preachers on YouTube, drawing out the worst possible glitches. And saying, like, this is 100% of the game. This happens when any game goes wrong. You think it only goes wrong. And you're like, well, actually, like, I'd say 95% of what we played was functioning and didn't look weird. Hmm. But, like, I'd say even 5% is kind of sort of unacceptable in my head. In terms of, like, any, you know, human enemies sliding along the floor or a boss not spawning or whatever. Like, that stuff's shit. But it's not like every single character in this game world is inside out, which... 
people yeah. would have you believe if you follow the online discourse. And it's even worse because it's like an Xbox thing. So then you get all the kind of console war people and not the cool console war people like me, like the bad console war people <laughs> um, who, who love this stuff and decide that because a character slides along the ground, they're going to tell someone at Arcane they're going to kill them or whatever. And you're like, well, cool, you know, as always it feels like it's becoming a game it's almost hard to say is bad because it lumps you in with some real dark assholes who think it's really bad yeah and that's why i think i'm tempering my language because i am an arcane fan and i do think they are allowed to take an l but it does feel like it would have been so good for this particular run of pretty amazing games at this point where we've had like resi 4 remake we're gonna get you know we've had um jedi survivor and then like zelda's coming next week final fantasy 16 is coming next month it would have been so sweet to just have a, a great arcane game in the mix there that would have been like yeah it could it would have made this like maybe the best sort of six months of games ever um perhaps but um yeah because it hasn't happened and i just don't see a way they can salvage it with with updates it just it feels like something that where i'm just like well I hope all that happens now is they are allowed to learn from it and move on and make something new. Yeah. Um, that's all I really want from from this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not not I'm not truly heartbroken. It's just that I don't I, know. On paper, like co op, um, sort of co op dishonored style game against vampires sounded so good, and so the the end result is quite flat. It's just really surprising. All the trailers for it were bad though. I actually didn't watch any of the trailers. Do you mean like the ones where it's like, oh, it's Wacky Man and stuff like that? I mean, it, well, it started off with just a video trailer of like characters being their characterful selves. And I was like, well, you can't learn anything from that. The second they started showing off the game, it, it's looked in a, every step of the way. I don't feel any disappointment because I, I honestly didn't think this was going to be any good. I, that it's kind of exactly what I thought was going to happen. Yeah, I didn't know what to expect from it, honestly. Right. And now it's here, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, it's that's tough. Far Cry was maybe what it was going for. It, it just you compare the um, immense like mechanical sophistication of like the glue gun in Prey to anything in this. There's just nothing. None of that inspiration comes through, really. Yeah. And none of the. Um, the sort of like majesty of the environmental design as well like that talos one was such an incredible place to explore such a beautiful mm. looking location hey ho matthew we survive we move on um my last game to discuss then and this will not be um a surprise to anyone who's listened to our xl episode on the uh, 50 moments that make us go oh no this month but i finished <laughs> mad max so people might remember in the best games of 2015 i played that game as research that episode i think i put it at number eight or something like that on my list and I stand by that after like playing the entire game. Ooh. Had a great time by the end of it, um, just ramming cars off the road, um, shooting like rockets from my little um, harpoon turret thing, and uh, yeah, like ripping off tires, uh, just like um, yeah, just just kind of doing a lot of damage, raiding these bases, pulling like down turrets, and um, yeah, like running over snipers and all this kind of like cool car combat stuff. I think like the everything I kind of said on that podcast is true in the sense of the melee combat is the worst thing about it. You'll have loads of fights where someone who you're meant to counterattack just flies off, flies in off the uh, the screen where you can't see them and then suddenly they hit you and you're down and it's quite quite frustrating but the car combat really nails it and the world really is like beautiful and it's just a, it's a great variant of the uh, old school open world um template Matthew. So had a good time with that one. Um not loads more to add there, probably because I got it all out of my system on the uh, the Excel pod, um, talking about uh, the people who needed water who I accidentally ran over. Uh, no regrets here, uh, my man. But um, yeah, fun times <laughs> out in the desert. You know, because it's got so so much sort of collectible and map stuff to do. Did you kind of like just start ignoring that for the sort of central story towards the end, or did it keep you engaged throughout? 
Oh, so weirdly, the non-story stuff is the best stuff about this game. And oh, the only okay. reason I deleted it um, from my hard drive is because Jedi Survivor was coming out and I needed, the, I needed it to move aside so I could just play that, basically. So I didn't actually completely exhaust the open world. It, it The game is slightly guilty of gating off a lot of the cooler upgrades by you having to do open world stuff. So it can be a little bit stingy in that respect and, and, and right. not, not necessarily respect your time by asking you to do a lot of that. But it's um, I think it's okay just because it's 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 absolutely at its best when you're just like not you're not going down like a tor- a corridor trying to kill certain enemies or whatever or um fulfill some kind of narrative objective and it's just like these freewheeling sometimes quite languid battles and then just slowly ticking off bits of the world and like the it gets so challenging as well you're just like you're getting bombarded with artillery when you're charging towards the base and stuff and it's just um trying to take down the defenses gets trickier and trickier and then the the amount of the, the challenges within will sometimes somehow um, be a lot harder than things you faced before and i think it really scales nicely it's like it's weirdly it weirdly nails it with the things you tick off there are exceptions though I, racing in this game is not good um as, mm. uh, as mentioned in that excel episode open world games um where that are not about racing that suddenly ask you to do racing tend to like not be particularly good when it comes to that actual racing experience and mm. that's definitely true here um yeah and so and somehow Don't give away the excel content for free <laughs> yeah that's four pound fifty yeah yeah or uh yeah yeah that's it that's that's all I'm, that's all i'm saying the free trial is over um yeah, yeah, really good, and like also manages to make sand exciting by lighting it differently, or having it be a slightly different color, um, or putting some like different types of objects around. So it's it's weirdly good at making what should be incredibly boring environments feel not lively but distinctive. So yeah, good. If you can get it for two ninety nine when it's on um, on sale on Xbox, it is a hearty recommend uh, from <laughs> me. Uh, so yeah, that's my last game, Matthew. What's yours? I've been playing the Xenoblade Chronicles 3 DLC, Future Redeemed, hmm. which, I mean, to call it DLC, it's kind of a standalone campaign. It feels like it's going to be of a similar size to the one that followed uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which was Torna, the Lost Country, the Golden Country. I can't remember that, what it was called. I think it's the Golden Country, I think. The Golden Country, which they sold that as a separate sort of standalone physical thing, like that's how substantial it was. And this one feels of a similar size, but they're not selling it, I think think that might be because this one really feels like it's for the hardcore fans which is kind of why it's brilliant but also why it, it wouldn't be a place you jump in without getting too kind of like lost in the xenoblade weeds this is a sort of series of jrpgs where they're sort of seemingly unconnected for about 99 percent of the of each game you know, it's a different cast, a different world, different mechanics, different rules, you know, almost like Final Fantasy. It's just like, you know, the, the, what connects them is the title. But then at the end of Xenoblade 2, there was like uh, a thing which tied it back to the end of Xenoblade 1 and suggested that, you know, well, they don't just suggest, you know, they exist in a universe and there is a direct connection between these these um, very disparate worlds. In the course of Xenoblade Chronicles 3, it makes that relationship with both those previous games a lot more explicit there are some like big callbacks there are some character links to those games um but even so when i got to the end of xenoblade chronicles 3 i thought oh, i did i i'd kind of hoped it was gonna have a little bit more of that you know i'd, I'd hoped it was gonna kind of tie a bow on it and and that's kind of what the dlc is about in a big way to the point where it's like absolutely amazing if you've played all three Xenoblade Chronicles games and love them and you're really into the kind of wider story you're going to be in heaven here because this is like what feels like the end of of this sort of Xenoblade arc and him going this is how it all connects but good luck 
jumping in here like you you just won't understand what's going on i've played the three games and i don't understand quite a large chunks of it i've had to do some proper like wikipedia kind of recap stories on youtube because i'm like who the fuck is this guy again think the architect at the end of the matrix but like a lot more confusing that's the kind of vibe we're going for here. As just a sort of a bit of JRPG making, I, I you know I'm still fascinated by what Monolith are able to do that no one else seems able to do, which is that they've you know basically made six full JRPGs uh, <laughs> in the course of ten, twelve years. I'm always amazed at how much they do move on in the course of two years from releasing Xenoblade Chronicles 3 that here's a game where they're like correcting some stuff from Xenoblade 3 adding some new ideas it feels like they're probably prototyping some stuff whatever they do next that's what they did with the Xenoblade Chronicles 2 DLC as well it's it's just constant steps forward you just love to see it really a studio kind of at the peak of its game just knocking it out again and again and again this story happens less and less as the generations get more and more sort of technologically complicated maybe it's the fact that they are tethered to a slightly simpler hardware in the form of the switch that kind of allows them to just focus on not trying to kind of push the boat out in a tech sense but just focusing on like mechanics story pure content production you know holding the line on uh, having no 4k textures in your game it's uh probably like taking tens of millions off the the price of making it um yeah yeah that's cool um yeah I, I, the four or so people i know who play xenoblade got very excited about this dlc um this last week so clearly it's um it's meant a lot are there any hints from this matthew at like where a uh, next game could go or does this feel quite conclusive as the... i haven't quite finished it um right. and the race is on is like can i finish this before tears of the kingdom probably not right the vibe i get is that it's trying to like conclude a lot of stuff that's come before because technically this dlc is a prequel to xenoblade 3 whatever happens after xenoblade 3 is still really up in the air and there's like the end of that game there were like big question marks about is this hinting at a huge combined universe of all this stuff or like will we ever see these characters again it felt like there was some unfinished business at the end of three that isn't going to be addressed by this dlc but this dlc is is addressing the unfinished business of xenoblade one and two which is probably like more important for the long-term fans Mm, okay interesting so a fans only affair but then if you're playing xenoblade chronicles 3 that's you're probably all in anyway at this point so yeah yeah oh so good so good yeah there's stuff i can't spoil in it because i know that there's like at least two xenoblade heads in the discord it'd be really (laughs) upset but um but i imagine this will end up in my my top 10 at the end of the year just just for the fan service alone interesting well yes um how's that going by the way your top 10 process i think i've got two games that are definitely going to be in there but uh we're actually almost halfway through the year now so i feel like i should be slightly further ahead than i am what about you uh i mean my whole i'm gonna play all these indie games and undiscovered gems and actually that hasn't happened at all because <laughs> um who could have predicted triple a developers started making exactly the kind of shit i love so <laughs> Yeah, who sucks to be you in these. <laughs> That's good, Matthew's. Uh, yeah, Matthew's policy has changed from yay indie games to I hate you indie games. Seems unreasonable, but you know <laughs> what do I know? Um, okay, Matthew, good. That's the what we've been playing section. I will say actually, just for your kind of like um, an FYI for you and your admin, I am actually playing the um, Apex Legends again at the moment, and the party boat which was famously my pandemic hangout spot, has 
<laughs> reappeared on I think all of the different maps. It seems to be on there seems to be some version of it on all of them. And the party boat for people who don't know is basically like this floating barge that has <laughs> um like a little kind of bar area and a disco going on, just sort of like a fancy yacht essentially that flies around. And you can press a button to unleash party mode and then these like big balls drop from the from the some some kind of hatch and then you just break them open to get some loot out and that remains a top hang all these um, years later but it's uh now a kind of like a weird pandemic and um, throwback energy to going there where i'm like oh yeah i spent like eight months here in 2020 that was strange wasn't it um <laughs> but yeah still a good hang matthew so just wanted to update oh, you on that um great yeah always love to hear about the party boat yeah not just complaining about the character barks in um apex legends again um a reference to some excel content there gotta stop giving oh, that that's one 48 things that they've got <laughs> left to not be ruined for them that's true someone's gonna ask me to paste that list um into the patreon post and it's gonna be such a pain in the ass but um yeah okay the formatting is gonna be a nightmare so matthew should we take a quick break and come back with some list of questions yeah let's do it Welcome back to the podcast. We've got a bunch of listener questions here. If uh, you're interested in sending us questions to answer on the podcast, there's backpagegames at gmail.com is our email address. I keep forgetting to mention that in the uh, the episode. If you're on our Discord, there is a pod questions uh, chat where you can drop questions in too. And we, uh, yeah, we normally list them out from there. Every now and then I'll strip out one that's like super long or I don't feel like we've got a good answer to. Um, but uh, generally speaking, we try and answer as many as possible. So thank you for your questions. On that, though, I will say occasionally we still get a question that get, makes it through. Where in my notes, I just write, ugh, because I just have got <laughs> nothing to say. <laughs> Is that this first one? Is that you? No, no, this no. There's one? One in, there's one in here. But yeah. I won't say what because I don't want to insult the, the lovely uh, listener <laughs> who took the time to write it. That'll, that'll make them all panic now as they try and work out which of them it is. Um, Dear Samuel and Matthew, Armored Core 6 promises to be quite a change in setting and aesthetics and maybe gameplay for FromSoft, a developer whose past games were mostly set in the oldie fantasy realms. What are some notable big leaps from other developers? Any surprisingly ambitious and successful gear shifts spring to mind? Uh, that's from Blinky. Yeah, I think there's some really obvious answers to this. So The Witcher 3 versus the other Witcher games is sort of like them redrawing the scope of it. But that's not to say that the other Witcher games were bad, but certainly that is a big leap. That was the, you know, that turned mm. that series from being a not a niche concern, but like a, a, a quite successful to extremely successful. And, you know, it's now like the dominant open world RPG, essentially. Um, I think that like, People might people who love Morrowind might disagree with this, but I feel like Oblivion was a triumph in making those that Bethesda template just a more accessible to a much wider audience. People feeling yeah. like they could play it. That is a, that's a huge leap, even if you you might prefer the sort of like um, messed up fun, fungi uh, looking stuff in um, in Morrowind as a world. So that's mm. uh, that may be uh, yeah your 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 mileage there may vary. But um, that's one that comes to mind. I think it's also like another real notable one is that I would say that I never really played Metal Gear Solid for the stealth experience and as as much as like the story and the setting until Metal Gear Solid Five, which obviously is so gameplay first as a kind of evolution of that series that that feels like a 
a major gear shift there. I don't know if those are all comparable to FromSoft, but those are the ones that come to mind, Matthew. What about mm. you? Yeah, I mean, in terms of just, uh, like, holy shit, here's a studio really arriving who you, you wouldn't necessarily have been excited about before. The jump for Rocksteady from Urban Chaos Riot response to Arkham Asylum. There's nothing about their first game that you think, oh yeah, they've got a, you know, a game of the calibre of Batman. I mean, I, I like, even when people started saying the Batman game is really good, I was like, really from like some relative nobodies i don't believe that but that puts them on the map in such a way maybe this isn't quite right but i do feel like the fact that we're now at a place where nintendo can publish a first party dynasty warriors spin-off based on like how that series starts that isn't like the series itself massively changing it's more like the dynasty warriors team fitting into a groove and realizing how to match their style of game with like the correct fandoms yeah. have kind of made that a, a much more palatable thing and definitely a much more notable thing like there was a time no one would talk about those games you know it would be a real duff freelance commission if you got asked to review a <laughs> dynasty warriors alike but now people like anticipate the Zelda ones, the Persona ones. I don't know. They there feels like a leap in legitimacy there. Yeah, it, it, for sure. Uh, the other thing I point out with this question is that FromSoft did make Armored Core before they yeah. made Demon Souls <laughs> and Dark Souls. That's that's the key thing. They're coming back to something. Yeah. With what they've learned from that, so slightly different narrative there. But we are we pledged not to pretend to be interested in it. <laughs> yeah, I'll play, someone. Um, I think like one of the combat designers of Sekiro is making it though, and I think they've added like some kind of stagger system. So there's going to be like basically like mech fight Sekiro, and I'm 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 all in on that <laughs> as an idea. But let's see, wait and see on that one. I think um, I can't disagree that Fires of Rubicon is a great subtitle though. Um, I think Breath of the Wild this applies to for sure. Like the um, however you feel about Skyward Sword, it just, um, the redrawing of the canvas there, and you can sort of, this is actually mentioned in that New York Times article that was sort of doing the rounds in Zelda, which is very nicely designed, and in that they mentioned that, like, that someone says that Zelda was stagnating a bit, and whether you think that's fair or not, I know, Matthew, where you stand on this, um, it, Breath of the Wild is suddenly a game that sold 29 million copies, it was just a completely, a whole other deal, so... Yeah, these these sleeps happen all the time. They they can be really exciting. Hi gents, we've had several ranking pods, but now we need the ranking to end all rankings. What is the best time in day to record the back page pod? This has been referenced throughout the podcast, usually by a jaded host. Uh, yeah, it doesn't narrow it down. But the listeners need to know. <laughs> Thank you for all you do and keep up the good work. That's from Bob Bob on Discord. Um, so it's definitely not a bank holiday Monday when you've got to get a train for three hours. Um, <laughs> that's today. Um, it's funny, Matthew. I think there are some episodes, like Games Court Midweek felt like a mistake to me. Like we just yeah. could not get into the funny headspace for it. Um, I think Saturday morning is generally the best day to record. What about you? It is, but it's also, I, I've come to resent recording Saturday mornings because I want to have a, like, a lion after a very busy week. Um, but it's tough because you know it, it, it has the results. Yeah, it's it's tricky because I sometimes think having a whole day to warm up makes me like a little bit more like loose and limber. Like sometimes I'm a bit groggy in the morning. Definitely my memory's a bit more fucked in the morning. Right. So I don't know that there is an optimal time. Yeah, I think I I do think that like Saturday can yield some good results. But Matthew is right. Sometimes I want to just kind of read some Batman comics in bed or something, and I'm like, ah, time to record in this so minutes. You know, there is something very particular about the tone of the podcast when you reach like half 10 on a weekday oh, and yeah. it's this kind of like oh we want to get the fuck out of here especially if it's got a guest yeah and you're like this is great and i'm love that they've given us their time but i wish they'd hurry the fuck up <laughs> 
yeah, I think I agree with that. It's uh, also like that 2015 one that we recorded on a Sunday night, and then by the end of it, you can hear me saying, oh, I'm so tired, man, as I'm trying to talk about <laughs> Metal Gear Solid 5 for the 18th time. Um, yeah, so the mor- morning on weekends is good, but I agree. It's sort of, when it runs super long and you see like 10 o'clock turn into 1 o'clock on your weekends, it can be a bit, you know... It's sort of like, I, I totally get you. I, I totally get what you mean. Yeah. But um, yes, there you go. Probably a bit too much information on what is uh, what is good and what is bad. But it's a short pod and it's midweek. That's actually fine. And we crammed it in from like six to eight or something. Then you yeah. still got your whole evening. It's not too bad. So uh, it, it's yeah. sometimes it's with a list. It's when I look at the clock and I'm like, oh, we're, we're both on entry seven <laughs> of like a top 10. And it's yeah. like, we've both got six to go. And this is taking a long time. I definitely do a lot of mental arithmetic of like, well, each one of these entries is taking roughly 15 minutes so six more of those and (laughs) then i just feel like the energy something and that's the annoying thing is by the time you reach the top of the list which is what the games you're most enthusiastic about they're the ones i want to talk about least because i just want to get the fuck out of there yeah that's true um the, the, the other thing is that sometimes episodes that should be short run so long and i don't understand why so why was that guilty pleasures movie episode like three hours long like that was that should have been a clear two hours a podcast that's got austin powers the spy who shagged me in it should be two hours long um and, and yet there we were so uh yeah who knows um lots of information there for you to to think about uh, basically i think what, what we're learning is there's no good time they're all bad times <laughs> <laughs> but we do enjoy making the podcast. At least I do. I hope Matthew still does. But uh, yeah. Oh, no comment from Matthew on that one. That's worrying, isn't it? Um, okay, next one then. Prompted by the rad Tears of the Kingdom trailer, what are some of your favourite trailers for games over the years? And bonus DLC question with slightly more nutritional value. If you compare your favourite game trailers to favourite film trailers, are there any shared themes or things that work better for advertising one medium over the other? And that's from Malam. A lot of them are mine are kind of like from, are from several years ago, really. So... I was a huge, just like a really early example of this, but I was a huge fan of the um, MGS4 Raiden versus Vamp uh, sort of trailer. Every MGS4 trailer was better than the actual game, I would say. They were all <laughs> so incredible dialing up hype. There's a really good one. I think it's like an E3 one where um, Snake is um, planning, trying to execute um, Ocelot in this crowd and then he activates his fucking weird, like, control all the soldiers thing and Snake can't quite pull the shot off. That's that's a really good one. Um, yeah, MGS4 just was absolutely rife with them. I would say that, like, the they were, like, the first two Red Dead Redemption trailers were just absolutely incredible because they were all gameplay. And there's, there's one that ends with John Marston, like... Um, pushing the plunger on some dynamite and you and it as a train goes past and it's just such a a good way to sort of set the scene those those trailers were just absolutely um absolutely majestic and yeah i think it's sort of like um even that final fantasy 15 one um where the car takes off at the end and then it like fades to white i thought was absolutely fucking great it just made the game it made me so excited about that game even mm. if the even if the flying car element was quite quite minimal in that game really it was something you could technically do um those come to mind i really love the um all of the deus ex mankind divided and human revolution ones are really good because they had that sort of like rad music they would use some of that you know kind of icarus um, imagery in the uh, human revolution trailers and lots of gruff adam jensen voiceover they did such a good job of like you know sort of like making you understand what that world was what world you were stepping into and also made adam jensen seem pretty cool as well and i thought those were like great ways to sell an immersive sim which is fundamentally quite a a sort of daddish genre and not super sexy so 
Yeah, those come to mind, Matthew. How about you? Pure recency bias and Nintendo bias, but when they did the Super Mario Gal- uh, Super Mario Odyssey trailer in 2017, which had the T-Rex, and then he turns his head, and he's got the little Mario cap, and you're like, what the fuck is this about? That's also got the bit where like Mario turns into the frog, and it has him kind of going down the 2001-esque-like tunnel. Really captured the kind of surreal nature of what that game was going to be. It had the, um, whatever that song is, Jump Up Superstar, whatever they call it. Something the Nintendo trailers do really well is just showing you, like, you know, those games are so stuffed with mechanical joys. They can just show you little, lots of little glimpses of them and you instantly kind of get, oh, that's what I'm going to be doing and that's why that's going to be fun. You can sort of see the fun happening and you just watch them over and over again and just imagine yourself playing them. I think that's really the key to the Zelda trailers. Like, Tears of the Kingdom trailer is amazing, but I mean, it's like almost a beat-for-beat beat remake of the 2017 Breath of the Wild trailer which they released at a similar kind of like a couple of months before it came out, starts with like slow shots of just the landscape, animals nibbling at leaves or whatever, and then has a little bit of the story stuff and then just lots of shots of Link hand gliding over like amazing locations while this rad music plays. And it's it's not like the most complicated trailer construction, but it's just, uh, I want to be in that place. I want to do that thing. You know, th- that looks like kind of a, f- a fun interaction to me. And, I guess, like, to lead into the other bit of the question, that's probably where, like, the the game trailers differ from film trailers, or the game trailers I really like are other ones where I can kind of, like, imagine myself playing them. It's, you know, it's the, here's some things you're going to do, rather than here's some things you're going to see, which I guess is the what film trailers kind of hinge on. Um, I haven't got a really deep philosophical take on why game and film trailers are different, to be honest. Like, yeah. I think of the trailers I watched over and over again. It's just the film trailers. It's just because they had... Which is the second Matrix film? Reloaded. Yeah. I watched that trailer so much just because it had, like, a couple of shots of people, like, landing in slow motion while things exploded and being like, that's going to be so fucking good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that, like... Yeah, film trailers are sort of, like... Because you have that curiosity of what the film is without knowing the finished shape of it, I ended up watching, like, the Dark Knight Rises trailer a lot, the Man of Steel trailer a lot, um... Like the, uh, I watched the, I think it was the Spectre trailer a lot as well. Um, a film that turned out to be such a dud, but I was obviously, I was like massively hyped for it off the back of Skyfall. So um, it being a dud mm. was a surprise. Uh, yeah, so though it tend to be, tends to go further back. I find like a lot of film trailers quite irritating though, especially when they start sticking shots of their third act set piece in there. I feel like these, um, these flash trailers are giving loads away by showing like fucking Michael Shannon Zod punching through Michael Keaton's bat playing and stuff and i'm like why is this in the fucking trailer it's right. obvious like like third act stuff so yeah, yeah. That, that kind of thing bothers me a little bit um yeah yeah so yeah i don't know with with games like you i, I like trailers that actually sell me on the experience of what the game actually is so um one that just came to mind and uh, i can't remember if i mentioned this before but there was a mirror's edge trailer that i think it just said at the start like everything you're seeing is captured in engine and it's just a section from the very first bit of the game where like um faith runs over some some buildings like the first or second level and then does like a wall run and basically does all the things you do in first person in mirror's edge but has that with this like really evocative music playing and it's like them just saying this is what the this is the game we've made we've made a first person platformer but you've never played a game like this before and it just mm. I, it sold me on it and i loved it so much and it definitely made me mega hyped for that game so yeah yeah i think it's it's conveying the essence of what the game is which is a fundamentally a different goal to film which is about the feel a lot of the time or the emotionality so mm. yeah um okay good this next one then matthew shall i read out this one yeah okay um 
kind of related. The recent trailer for Tears of the Kingdom got me really hyped for the game to levels I haven't felt since GTA 5. It got me thinking of a question for you both. What is the most hyped you've ever been for a game, and what was the game? Did you find yourself losing the same levels of hype as you, you were used to for games as soon as you started working as a journalist, or do you think as we grow older we lose that same level of excitement for a new game release as we move further away from the enthusiasm of our youth? <laughs> Thanks for all the games, great podcasts you put out uh, each week. That's from Angry Kurt. Um, yeah, kind of related, I suppose. I think that in a general sense, I don't allow myself to get too hyped about games because I, I just kind of like, I'm happy to like let them land on my doorstep and see how I feel about them. So for example, Final Fantasy 16, I've pre-ordered it. I'm going to play it. I'm absolutely like all in on Final Fantasy 16. I'll definitely play it. But I haven't gone out of my way to learn about it or get myself hyped up about it. I'm just sort of like, well, Square Enix doesn't fuck about with numbered entries to Final Fantasy games. I feel like I'm in good hands. And when it gets here, I will get excited about it. And that that more accurately conveys my relationship with games now. I'm sort of like, they're on my radar, but I don't spend weeks and weeks thinking about them in the way that maybe I did when I was a bit younger. There are probably some exceptions to that, but yeah, that's generally my approach, Matthew. What's what's your sort of attitude towards that? I still, I mean, as proven with Tears of the Kingdom, like I have the capacity. I think as a journal, you're probably too close to something and you're too on top of it and you're too familiar with things for them to be almost like mysterious enough to hold that that kind of allure hmm. you know as much as i've moaned about not being able to review tears of the kingdom the fact that i haven't played it before release has, has like supercharged release date in a way that i haven't experienced for like a long time i felt this excited for mario odyssey actually which again i didn't get to review so there was a sense of like oh a new nintendo thing and i've deliberately avoided it which i would you aren't really able to do when you're a journalist it's kind of like tapping back into just how i felt as a punter as a teenager you know i remember feeling so hyped for perfect dark just off the back of goldeneye you know i loved goldeneye so much and n64 magazine you know it covered perfect dark so comprehensively and sort of showed us so much of it and just made it sound so exciting you know it's what i like about like really great games writing games journalism as i think it can like tap into that excitement and be like your companion in hype which i really like you know some people are a bit sneery about that and think hype is all just it's a bit kind of commercial it's a bit naff but i'm i'm not embarrassed about that end gamer was like big into being excited alongside you and i owe a lot of my like big hype memories to to magazines kind of psyching me up the gamecube era in general felt incredibly exciting to me because i think i was finally old enough like i had a job i was making money to be able to buy my own games i had control over my own gaming diet and that just made everything seem so like attainable waiting for like sunshine and then waiting for wind waker just unbelievable levels of hype i worked in home base and my shift was on friday night which obviously fridays was when all the big games came out and having to work at home base when I knew I had a copy of Mario Sunshine in my bag or a copy of Wind Waker in my bag I just have to get through this four hours walk down to the bus station put up with all the horrible kids who bully me because I'm dressed in a home base uniform and then get a half an hour bus ride and then I get to play this thing which has just been on my mind for so long and I've probably read like the import reviews because you know global releases weren't a thing back then so there was a sense of someone else having something before you that could only heighten the hype yeah I love it like I'm not embarrassed to be into all that (laughs) yeah I think uh, when I was trying to like sort of isolate this myself as well I came back to the PS2 era so Mm. certainly when I got a PS2 it was at the end of 2001 when um which is when the PS2 had really taken off. Like, it's funny now because we're so, there's so much talk about exclusives all the time. And I don't think the PS2 had a really major in house exclusive until Gran Turismo 3, which was over a year into the console's lifespan. But 
obviously didn't matter because the PS2 had a built-in DVD player so that made it a huge seller and obviously people had so much goodwill left from the PS1 and they knew good games were coming but when you got to the end of um, 2001 that was when you saw like this avalanche of stuff dropping so you had um, in, in North America at least you had like Final Fantasy X, Jack and Daxter, you had uh, Grand Theft Auto 3 and then Metal Gear Solid 2 as well, Sons of Liberty and of those definitely in that kind of like early me paying attention to PS2 era Metal Gear Solid 2 was the game I was the most like hyped about. I was just like, I have to see what this is. There was so much chatter about it. I read every single magazine I could that previewed it. Um, the game itself, obviously, is sort of like an up and down affair. We talked about it a lot on this podcast before, and but but definitely like I was c- capable of levels of hype that I couldn't quite summon now. I mean, I haven't even played Death Stranding, which is quite unusual. So my relationship with Kojima Games has changed quite a lot over the years. But um, there are other instances from that that period where I would get mega hype for something so gta vice city massive thing as well because gta 3 was such a huge game for me and then all the details you'd hear about were were like you can go in buildings now or which you know you could in some buildings or like (laughs) um fly helicopter and fly airplanes properly rather than just a dodo plane with its kind of weird precarious handling um and and obviously the 80s setting as well and it did that seemed on paper all these like pink and you know, light blue sort of Michael Mann ass screenshots of um of Vice of Vice City um just looked absolutely incredible. So I just remember I have a vivid memory of like a double page spread in um a official PlayStation Two magazine where I was like, I have to. It's it was so important that I play this. I cannot wait for this. And that, that was mm. a huge moment because I was like fourteen, so it was the right time for it. Um, arguably, it was. I mean, it was illegal for me to play it, but you know, in terms of my hype levels, they were certainly up there. Um, obviously, I was a huge fan of Final Fantasy X, so the fact they made a sequel was exciting to me. Uh, the sequel was not my sort of thing in the end, <laughs> ultimately, but I certainly remember <laughs> being hyped because there's kind of a cliffhanger ending in um, Final Fantasy X of like what happens to the main character. And X2 does resolve that if you 100% the game, which is completely unreasonable. So that was um, ultimately quite disappointing. Um, it's the Xenoblade Chronicles 3 DLC of its day. <laughs> very much so and so um and slightly before that actually like um pokemon gold and silver they seemed really they were just so like exotic and strange to someone who'd got massively into red and blue and suddenly there were these actual like color games coming out you know using the game boy color tech rather than just the original game boy tech and seeing japanese screenshots of all these strange pokemon you'd never seen before it just did this very specific thing to my brain where i'm like okay now i get why young pokemon fans are obsessed with this when they add new monsters and they Mm. get obsessed with new monsters because in that moment when i was seeing like this weird stuff like those um those uh alphabet pokemon where they're all a different letter of the alphabet they seem really fucked up and strange and then you know just um seeing the new starters and being like whoa this looks like just so different to everything i've experienced and when the game got here it was pretty good but i was actually like i'd already grown out of pokemon a little bit by the time it landed but uh Mm. yeah big hype levels any others matthew or should we move on let's move on all right would Samuel care to spill any light on the spy column in PC Gamer? Always enjoyed reading it in the mag and trying to work out who was writing it. I always thought it had big Andy Kelly energy, but was probably completely wrong. Was it a deadline last minute nightmare? That's from Jesmond. So I wouldn't ordinarily talk about this, but I think Phil actually revealed it when he came on our came on the podcast the first time um, for the Accuser episode. So uh, Phil tended to write the spy when I was there because 
what was really funny is that like it's um what it is basically yeah it's like a is a rumor column written from the perspective of like a secret agent and so there'd be lots of secret agent jokes around the actual like rumors bits and mm. as time went by the spy became less important in the internet age because you're always obviously like three weeks behind whatever the actual news was um so the that would move on very quickly so the it became more of a like it was something people expected to see in the UK mag. So he kept it rather than it having like a specific editorial function. So, right. <laughs> um, and Tony Ellis, who I worked with, was very frustrated when writers took on the spy but couldn't actually get what the right tone of the spy was. And I was definitely one of those writers where he was like, you don't entirely <laughs> get this. And I was, I was like, fair enough. Andy Kelly was the same. He sort of like, we both threw our hands up a little bit, but Phil did get it. Phil, and before that, I think, um, uh, yeah, there was a, a couple of other people who really got it. Um, historically but phil was the one who understood what the spy was he's kind of he was the keeper of the spy i imagine that's still the case but um yeah it was it was a last minute headache sometimes there were were like no good rumors which was tough but you'd also have to pick it was like picking a theme like i'm in um like i'm attached to a submarine in panama or something like that and then it'd be lots of jokes about being in panama and stuff and it was really hard to make it work i just (laughs) as a creative writing challenge i i thoroughly failed at it so those are my spy insights matthew um okay next question then so following on from the mario moments episode stealth plug for the patreon some great stuff on there what would bath look like as a mario level or mario kart track that's some balladeer thoughts matthew easier to see it as a mario kart track uh, but my thinking didn't go much further than the circus and the crescent are really good for power slides you could scoot past the genitals that were carved into the lawn outside the crescent <laughs> They fucking got um, rid of that so quickly. They yeah. sh- sort of shaved a big cock into the big field outside these posh houses, and the council were on that shit. But if there's like a dead bird by the river next to a slightly naff street, they'll leave it there for weeks. Fuck that shit. That's like proper classism, that is. I like, mean, the, the, the slight difference between a giant cock carved into a lawn and one dead bird. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but what I'm saying is, like, they only cared about it because it was a posh area. If it was, like, the uh, outskirts of town, they wouldn't give a shit, but it's like, oh no, we can't can't let the can't let the affluent neighbourhoods have a tough time, do you know what I mean? Yeah, if it yeah. was on the outskirts of town, it would probably just be left there for centuries, and then <laughs> in, like, 500 years, everyone's like, oh, that's the great cock of Bath, and everyone's really <laughs> fond of it, and it's on tea towels. Weren't people calling it, like, a Neolithic mon- monument <laughs> of, um, uh, like, uh, what's it um fertility that's what people were calling it and i was like yeah very good so uh um, yeah but, I, uh, but generally i actually think bath would be okay as a mario kart track because it's got a bit of a one-way system anyway it's like a big loop you go up and then there's a big you know it's it's on like a big slope so you'd have the kind of like the drive up then you do all the power sliding at the top with the circus and the crescent and then you're just like driving all the way down again i could see it being quite a quite a fun up down little little loop how far would it go up? Will you go up to the Hare and Hounds or stop before there? You're going all the way up. You're going to the circus. You're just, you're just power sliding that whole circus and then <laughs> straight back down. Like, ideally, like, you're setting off your boosts when you hit the, the man outside the Jane Austen Centre. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I think that um, I was thinking, could it be like a world tour track, like those DLC tracks where you go through a different supermarket in each lap? So the first one, you go drive through Waitrose. Second one's like Sainsbury's. Third one's like M&S or something. So uh, slightly different supermarket each time. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it'd feel like if it, that's the thing if it was a mario kart track it would definitely be going through like the roman baths and there'd be lots of steam and everything you'd jump over the pools yeah um, and to make it to make it accurate like if let's say like um 
a Wario is driving something quite obnoxious around there, he'd be hit with like a clean air energy sort of like bill, you know what I mean, the post <laughs> afterwards. So that would be reflected in the content too. He'd get I, it and go like, ah, sort of thing. I think, in the post. I think the, the hot spring steam would be used for uplift for the um, <laughs> hang gliders. Yeah, that's good. It would be be real good for hang gliding actually yeah um would the abbey be involved because no roads around there but it feels like you should be able to skid around the abbey somehow that should be a thing yeah. to do yeah okay something to think about there um okay good yeah i think we answered that one pretty well um it actually, it actually would make a, a, a an okay track if not a, a not a good open world game as such what barks would you issue if you were units in command and conquer i need one for the initial select one for movement and one for attack and that's from zach Okay, yeah, I mean, I struggle with this one a little bit because in, like, um, Command and Conquer, they're super distinctive, over-the-top, sort of like, uh, yes, sir, for king and country. Those, that's the spy character in um, in Red <laughs> Alert, which is closely, obviously, based on Sean Connery. So, I don't know. I just, I think if I was, like, selected, I'd be like, ugh. Because that's my response when I get an email about anything now. I'm just like, ugh. <laughs> um, so that'd be my first one. Um, one for movement, I'd be like, sure. And then one for attack. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. That'd be my, my three, I think. Really basic. Oh, great. But... <laughs> what incredibly low energy well, I don't want to be like this would be. Um, I don't want to be like, oh, sorry, I was eating a sandwich when you click on me. Do you know what I mean? Or like, I don't want to be super contrived. It's like, uh, oh, if I, it's like if I can shake these big man titties, I'll be there for the movement. You know what I mean? Like, or, <laughs> or attack is like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a, you know, I'm more of a slapper than a puncher. You know, there's like three <laughs> off the cuff ones, I guess. But um, what about you, Matthew? Um, well, mine are from the school of irritatingly overlong barks that you instantly hate. <laughs> um, when you select me, I go, why am I even here? I have bone spurs. <laughs> Very good. When I have to do movement, I say, oh, please tell me it isn't uphill. <laughs> um, okay. I haven't really got one for attack because I was trying to think, like, would I be a like, sort of peacenik type? Would it be sort of like a... I don't know. I, I, I couldn't really think what I'd say in in, in sheer combat. I, like the thing is, I can't really imagine myself. I'm just such a coward. I would freak out. I think. I think I'd be like fundamentally broken as a unit. I think if you ordered me to shoot, I'd just like drop the gun and like have a bit of a wobble behind a boulder or something. <laughs> has anyone ever started a fight with you? You don't seem like that kind of person. But has anyone ever like tried to like, you know, you're a tall guy. I want to take you on, kind of thing. Has that happened um, to you? I had, I had a, a minor altercation with a man in town once who almost ran me over at the zebra crossing uh, outside the Odeon. Right. Like I was crossing it, and he drove like right in front of me. I had to step back, and then I, you cross over the zebra crossing, then you cross over that second road, which leads into that car park. Yeah. And the guy who'd gone past me on the zebra crossing had, in the time, he had gone round and was coming into the parking and almost did it again. So I hit the back of his car with my hand. Right. And he instantly skidded to a stop and he got out and he just screamed in my face. And that's the closest I felt like I've come to like someone punching me wow. in the face. But if I was stronger, yeah, I often think of what terrible thing I would have done to that person. <laughs> Those are the Max Payne three apartments as well, though, right? So he's probably a fucking drug dealer or something. No, and that's the thing. It was, it was a, it was a. Well, I was gonna say it was a really fancy car, which doesn't really help my case here. Um, no, but the, the thing I was surprised, the thing I was surprised about was he had his um, partner girlfriend in the car with him. Right. I often think I should have said, just shouted out, like, "This person's clearly a psychopath. You shouldn't be with this person." Wow. You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's what what, what plays out in my mind but that probably wouldn't have helped matters i thought i was well within my right to hit his car to show my displeasure 
Yeah. That he almost hit me twice. Yeah, that sucks. Um, okay, interesting. Yeah. But if he's going to the Max Payne 3 apartments, he's probably got a fucking armed militia in there, Matthew. So, uh, yeah, who knows? Oh. Um, okay, good. <laughs> so, um, a very different uh, note here. Uh, <laughs> That really did like turn uh, jolly to quite serious there. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's I mean like what I've just told you that's like genuinely like a a point of continued trauma that I think of a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know what you mean. I'd sort of like um, I got served before someone at a nightclub in Bournemouth, and this guy was going to start a fight with me because I got served first. And obviously, if you've ever been to a nightclub, it's just chaos. So I don't go. One of the reasons I don't go is because trying to buy a drink there can take like 45 minutes and it sucks and um i had to like buy him a pint to stop him from beating me up and i always think about that as like a bioware style choice i made and then he shook my hand and i was like i fucking hate traditional notions of masculinity but instead i I just avoided getting punched when i was 18 which is wise probably i often think if i was to get into another altercation i think my go-to tactic is to tell the person i'm an off-duty policeman they really don't want to fuck with me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's uh, that's a great idea. I mean, if they call you a bluff, it might be tough. But what happens if they're an off-duty policeman? Oh, that could be messy. <laughs> and, and you go, you go right. Let's both show each other our badges at the same time. Three, two, one, and then neither of you have badges. That could but be, then, uh, but then, I've literally thought that through and thought, do I buy like something that looks like a police badge? <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of you you are suddenly arrested for impersonating a police officer being like the reason we have to stop making this podcast would be absolutely wild. Uh <laughs> really funny thought but there. But as a self-defense technique. Yeah, you can say it's cosplay. I'm just cosplaying as Judge Dredd or something. Um yeah. Okay, that's that's really funny. <laughs> really got got into something there. Okay. <laughs> Very different note here. What was the demo you played the most back in the day? That's from Daryl. What's your answer to this one, Matthew? Metal Gear Solid 2, the tanker demo that came with Zone of Enders. We played more than Zone of Enders for sure. But that's a bit of a cliched one. I, I was trying to really cast my mind back to when I used to play a lot of the Amiga with my friend Craig. And we used to play this game called Tanks. And I don't know if it was a demo or if it was just a shareware game and we were playing it in its entirety. But that was definitely on the... Um, on a cover disc of a some Amiga mag, and it was a bit like a sort of proto-worms, except you had a tank at either end of the map, and all you did was move the tank left and right and change trajectory and power, and you were just trying to hit the other tank. So you were just taking it in turns to take pot shots along the length of this kind of hilly terrain, mm. um, gradually kind of working out, like, oh, if I do this next turn, then it'll be enough to hit them. Um, we played that loads, and I, I still don't know if there was, like, more game to tanks that we never uncovered. Right, right. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, that's MGS2 is a good one. I played that a hell of a lot. I didn't play it with Zone of the Enders. I played it when it came back around on official PlayStation 2 magazine. But yeah, absolutely uh, rinsed it. Uh, enjoyed the crap out of that. The um, the other one was um, Age of Empires. The original one had like a four-level demo. And three of the levels were quite simple. But the fourth level was uh, you could properly, you could build a town, you could build loads of units thing. And then it was just, I remember like me and um, a friend from the time in like year six just building boat after boat after boat and just annihilating the enemy over and over again and like we had a we had a great time with that probably ended up playing that more than the original age of empires to be honest because by the time i got around to um to buying one of them the second one was out which was obviously a lot better game so yeah that one i played loads and loads um mm. yeah the uh there's quite a few demos from the ps2 days that i played like a whole bunch of so weirdly i played loads of um tarzan free ride back in the day um <laughs> my only experience of ico for a long time was the demo of ico actually that was um mm. that was one i played tons 
Dawn, uh, Dynasty Warriors 3, I played a lot because you, you kind of didn't need the full game of Dynasty Warriors 3 because you had a full level of it here. And it's like, well, that's basically the entire experience is in this demo. Yeah. I, beat, I beat 800 guys to death. Like, this, there's nothing more the, new, the main game can show me, really. Um, I had that with a demo of Blood on the PC because mm. you're like, fundamentally, why you want this game is so that you can use these weapons to explode monks into gory bits, which yeah. you can do in this one level. So thank you very much. Yeah, that's it. And actually, like... um. I'd never played Soldier of Fortune 2 except for the demo of it, but it was a great right. demo because it you know, had all of the kind of like maiming of dudes in it, all of that war crime <laughs> stuff. And we did end up buying the original um, Soldier of Fortune for like two quid or something off the back of that in one of those sold out boxes. So, you know, like um, that's... I honestly have played absolutely tons of demo back in the day. I just absorbed everything that was on the PC Gamer and official PlayStation Mag um, cover discs. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. What's the worst game you've been gifted either solely or came with a console you received? When I was 10, I was given a Nintendo N64 and I got Earthworm Jim 3D and Michael Owen World League Soccer. I tried <laughs> so hard to enjoy Earthworm Jim, but it's my default go-to pick for bad 3D platformers. That's from Imagery i am gtr 63 well it's interesting because my parents were always so they knew that i was so particular about things i liked they didn't even try and sort of mess around really so by default the worst thing i the worst game i got from them was 007 nightfire wait no 007 agent under fire with my ps2 which was one of those like just about competent early noughties ea tie-ins and it was it was okay it was fine but it wasn't like massively offensive i guess is my point matthew so uh Mm. what about you yeah same here like i've been lucky no one's ever just bought me a random game like Mm. i've only ever got stuff i've wanted and it's mostly been good the only thing i can really think of and it isn't even really mine was when my brother alex got his ps2 he got first starfighter game on ps2 whatever Mm. that was called yeah. Um, but that was good. I quite like that. I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't hate that game. So yeah, I've just, I've lived a very blessed life. I've never been bought like something that that's truly kind of howling. My poor friend Andrew, aka the protagonist of Final Fantasy Seven, him, yeah. him and his girlfriend recently bought a Switch, uh, like a the handheld one, Switch Lite, and they bought it with. He lost. He he kind of lost. He was pushing for. We pay ten pounds more and we get Metroid Dread. And he lo- he kind of like kind of caved, and they spent ten pound less and got the last Harvest Moon game, which was right, co- yeah. consi- considered quite duff. And I was there, and I, I kind of like ragged on him for that for quite a long time. I was like, you should have been more assertive because I think oh, she yeah. played it. I think she played it once and ditched it. And it's like I did try and explain to him, you can just buy Stardew Valley. It's about ten quid. And it will tick all those boxes, and you'll, it'll only cost you twenty pound more, but you'll have two great games instead of one not very good game. So, yeah, that's one example recently where I'm like, <laughs> he brings up a lot of like the the Metroid Dread regret that he experienced <laughs> off the back of that. Okay, next one then, Matthew. This one's for you. I was a big fan of the PC gaming weak spot over an RPS due in large part because of mystery Steam reviews and Matthew's antics during them. Given that show is now gone, have you all thought about bringing it back at all? Cheers from Boston. Uh, some Stefan. Um, P.S. If that's not allowed, maybe you can start a definitely new game that's very legally distinct from Mystery Steam Reviews, perhaps Secret Online Game Store Appraisals. Yeah, Matthew, I, this is your your whole other subworld of podcasts and RPS. Mystery Steam Reviews was just us guessing games from Mystery Steam Reviews. It, it wasn't it wasn't hugely complicated, but uh, I'm pretty sure it was Cullum's idea uh, and 
like the format i don't know it feels like it sort of belongs to rps because i actually started doing it i think after i'd already been made redundant the, the pc gaming week spot was something they invited me back to do like as a freelance gig so yeah i don't i don't know like easy to repeat but we're also like i don't know we're not I, we don't feel like we're a very mini gamey podcast really I sort of like like the idea of that, but I also I, I couldn't lift someone else's podcast idea. I don't think and be like, oh yeah, we're doing that on this podcast now. Tell that to the big picture. <laughs> that okay? The film podcast we listen to aside, but also the specific formats we've borrowed from them. Other games podcasts haven't been doing really. I feel like the if, yes. if we're not the first people who've done a games draft, we've got to be among the first people who've done that kind of idea. So I don't know. I feel like that's probably best left. Yeah, like you say, belonging to RPS. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I hope that there was going to be more excited excitement and mileage in um, my classic. Is it a Xenoblade crafting ingredient or is it a nineties drug slang? But uh, <laughs> that that one just didn't land anyway. So I just haven't even bothered to come up with similar concepts since then. Oh, I forgot about <laughs> that. I'd like to do another nineties um, games magazine. Um, quiz we have to guess the game from the paragraph oh yeah that was... i guess that's more like our equivalent that's that's a bit closer in tone to mystery steam reviews i think yeah like... i think people like that one it's yeah. yeah we could do that again it's actually it took a lot more prep than we thought it would though oh, so. It, was so much, it was really hard work <laughs> finding like old scans of things yeah that's it so we had the old um, podcast regret great idea um stressful execution good times Okay, good. Well, uh, yeah, I hope that answers the question of someone who obviously uh, misses your old work, Matthew, and not the yeah. brilliant work you're doing here, um, yeah. here and now. Um, okay, so you want to read this next one? Uh, are there any games that you feel you really should have played, but for some reason just haven't? Uh, for me, it's Chrono Trigger. That's from Doomican. Well, we're talking about the old pile of shame here, and that's like uh, that sort of never really ends. I mean, there's sort of. Um, I was talking to someone the other day about how. I've not played Planescape Torment, and if I didn't play Planescape Torment when I was editor of PC Gamer, and <laughs> before I turned like 35, will I ever play it? There was a bit of that going on there. Um, so I would say that classic RPG, those sort of like PC RPGs, CRPGs, particularly that kind of like 90s Infinity Engine era and slightly beyond, that's probably my biggest weak spot of like knowledge, like big biggest knowledge gap. So those are the ones where I'm like, I really should have played them, but I haven't. Um, what about you, Matthew? Uh, yeah, like that I've not played an MMO ever seems like a big oversight given that it's like such a, it's it's not just like knowing the genre inside out, it's just knowing the influence it has on other games, mm. um, you know, like that I've, you know, I couldn't even describe what happens in World of Warcraft and there's loads of Final Fantasy games uh, I haven't played, I think I've only ever finished 10 and 15 yeah which is bad given that they're quite massive games in a lot of people's lives and i have to have so many bits where i just have to be like hey yeah sure and sort of nod along to other people talking about final fantasy as if i have any idea what they're talking about do you mean me on this podcast basically no, well, you, this, 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 you're on. You, you always give me the context that i need but like i work with a lot of final fantasy heads as well and right i'm pretty good at going back and filling in the gaps on things but mm. final fantasy they're just too big they're yeah. just too big to go back and do that yeah, so I actually it's interesting because I did go out of my way to play Deus Ex a few years ago, as listeners might remember, and yeah. that was a really satisfying experience because it, while it took a, it took a little while. I think I played it like over the course of a week and a half um, when I was off um, between jobs, and that, um, but that experience was was kind of suitable because it, I think I fit it into like twenty hours in between other stuff, whereas a, a Final Fantasy is an undertaking. That's like sixty hours of your life gone, and that could be two or three months of you know games you can play for this podcast just like wiped out so i totally get what you mean it's um mm. tricky to weigh it up 
Okay, next up then. Dear Podmen, what video game creature do you think would taste nice in a sandwich? A head crab and mayo sub? Perhaps a Moogle meat deluxe or keep it simple with a Goomba lettuce and tomato baguette. That's from KH2698. Um, so I th- I remember like I made a joke about having um, Togepi um, sc- scrambled eggs once and um, got an absolutely appalled reaction from my then girlfriend. But um, I thought that was quite a good show. I've like, always been tempted to give like have a little munch of Toad. Do you know what I mean? Just bite his head a little bit and see what that oh, tastes I like. I don't like mushrooms at the best of times. Let alone one which has like, got a face and t- can talk to me. Is there ever been a bigger like conceptual lie than the mushroom burger, by the way? Where it's like, it says burger, and then it is just a big mushroom inside a bun, and you're meant to be impressed by it. And I'm like, at least give me some kind of like crushed mushroom patty. You know what I mean? That's so, that's like a hot mushroom sandwich, I'd say. Ag- agreed, agreed, my friend. So, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't think that much about eating creatures in games, because sometimes the way they're rendered, you can't really picture what they would taste like, because they're sort of anime-ish, and you're like, I don't know what a chocobo would taste like if you deep fat fried that bad boy you know what i mean it's it's tough what about you probably just go for an animal which is quite close to a real world animal that i like to eat so like you know the cuckoos from zelda you know they're just chickens so let's just kill them and i'd have some like chicken mayo baguette that it'd be one of those chickens from zelda instead (laughs) it's not a very imaginative answer but it's it's the truth or like various fish uh you know i don't eat a lot of baguettes as many baguettes these days as i used to but i will occasionally have uh if, I, if I'm like quite stressed at lunchtime, I might go and eat a uh, a tuna baguette from Pret. <laughs> that's so a, that's... I could see it being like a tuna baguette from Pret, but it's made with like a fucking Hylian bass or whatever from fucking <laughs> Breath of the World. Incredible, yeah. Um, yes, I, 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 I uh, yeah, good, good call there. Uh, yeah, obviously, like uh, Breath of the World's food is all very kind of like enticing, but I think what they're fishing for here is something a bit more deranged, and I don't quite have that in me. Um, big bank holiday Monday energy. Too many of these things have got they've got too much personality, or, or I'm like mates with them. Yeah, like it'd be really messed up if I said I want to like eat an Asari from Mass Effect. I'd be like, oh, maybe the Hanar. I'd give the Hanar a little bit of a taste. You know what I mean? They seem a bit oh, like... Oh, it looks, it looks grim. It looks um, like you get some kind of, like, cosmic space virus if you ate that. You know what I mean? You know those Mario enemies? I, I don't really know what they're called, but they look like Smarties with feet, and they, they sort of march in, like, a row of five. Yeah, 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 those little guys, yeah. I, I, maybe they're just insects, so they'd just be full of, like, bug guts and paste. <laughs> but, I, but that, you know, I always think of, like, Smarties when I see them, so maybe they've got, like, a sweet treat vibe to them. Yeah. It's probably, like absolutely like incredibly bitter insect <laughs> insides well you cut it open it's like when you cut open the tauntaun and uh, empire strikes back and loads of like weird jelly stuff comes out and you're like oh <laughs> this is not how i pitched it at all uh yeah, yeah very good okay i think we kind of fumbled our way through that one matthew even though it was mentioned that mercenaries in resident evil 5 was one of the best from resi what would you rank the other mercenaries as after this one i love the original one from 3 and was gutted that there was no return of it in resident evil 3 remake uh, that's from Daryl. This is like um, probably going to sound like, uh, you know, this probably might disappoint you, Daryl, but I've actually not played original Resident Evil 3. So the, uh, the or at least I've not played it for more than like an hour or so. Um, I do have it on uh, my PS Vita, I think. Or maybe it's on my PS3. And I think I didn't get far enough to un, you know unlock Mercenaries. I think that's something you get at the end of the game. And that means that my experience with it starts with Resident Evil 4, which I think it does for like a lot of people. Um, in terms of ranking them, I suppose like the ones I've played, I didn't bother with the whatever the seven and village versions were of that of that mode because I didn't the combat was quite up to it in the same way. But mm-hmm. um, I think that 
Five would probably still be the best, but the four, the four remake one's really good. Um, the different character abilities and the way they are differentiated works very nicely. The levels are pretty decent. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite enjoying that one. Have you played that one, that new one, Matthew? No, not yet. Yeah, so it'll probably go like five, four remake, six, which I think has a really good one, and then probably original four. That I know a lot of people love the original four one, but I think it's just a the longevity of it is kind of what the magic is, like the different maps and the way it escalates. And there are only four maps in um, the Resi 4 one, I think. So it's sort of like, I found that like a more of a finite experience, as much as I enjoyed the Waterworld map, mm. of course. Um, but yeah, five just, uh, when you add co-op to the mix, it's just, it suddenly becomes like super essential. Next question then. I really enjoyed your short discussion about QTEs in the Resi 4 pod. It felt much more nuanced than normal for the topic, where the conventional wisdom among players is that they're just bad shit and should never be used. I like the idea, I think it was Matthews, that they can broaden the palette of actions for a game without taking away focus from the core mechanics it uses the majority of the time. From a bit of an overdose in the mid-noughties to more or less exile from the industry today, it feels like fan reaction has caused an overcorrection. Are there other bits of game design you think have fallen unfairly by the wayside, or ways that a strong reaction from players has had an exaggerated impact on the industry? Um, my usual disclaimer, if this is a terrible question, please don't read it out and make me look like an idiot. That's from Serrano. I think it's a perfectly fine question, Serrano. Any thoughts on this one, Matthew? I could think of things which like haven't lived on, but it's not because they were maligned. You know, like the the big one that often comes up on this podcast is the uh, the classic Goldeneye Perfect Dark difficulty tiers. Yeah, the sub objectives. But that you know, people didn't do that because fans hated it. In fact, everyone I know who's played those games loves that about it. I guess it's just really hard work. I don't know why that doesn't live on. A, a broad version of this, where I think maybe fans had a bit of an impact. I feel like after the quite bold departure of Metroid Other M, you know, it was kind of laughed at and didn't do particularly well. I feel like Nintendo mascots have mostly stayed in their lane since then. I'd love to see a Nintendo that was open up to just trying something a bit a bit different like they did with that Metroid. It's a bit vague, but that's that's sort of a, a feeling I have. Like I don't feel like I've seen any of the mascots do anything like truly outrageous in the last fifteen years. And another one that comes up often on this podcast is just this, it's not because something's maligned, but because something is assumed to be loved by an audience. It's this sense that everything today has to be sort of elevated or mature or a bit more profound or psychologically real in some way. Uh, I think there is a slight embarrassment about the simple pleasures of games used to be a bit dumber and a bit lighter on their feet with it and i don't need everything to be dad of war kind of having having a bad time and feeling awful about the stuff he used to do i used to love the stuff he used to do um but that's i don't know that that, again slightly vague (laughs) yeah this is a slightly tricky one this i think there's like a a few mechanics i see less often in games now where i'm like that was a cool idea why didn't that come back so I wasn't a huge fan of um, Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, but I did think the mechanic where you could call in assassins to kill a target for you is like mm-hmm. a, a little power is really cool. And there are some games I've played where I'm like, oh, it might be cool to do something like that in Cyberpunk or something. And you know, even like um, you, like it's something I really like. Something I really like about Jedi Survivor is that the times where you are with an AI companion, they have some quite cool, meaningful abilities that can mix up the combat and rebalance it slightly and that sort of thing but i like the idea of very disposable enemies who just like kill that guy they turn up and they disappear again that was just a, a cool notion i think the another thing is that i i liked it when one thing i found um, slightly disappointing about the more modern dice uh, star wars battlefront games is that you had to like go to these icons to get into vehicles and or like you know pay currency to get in them uh, something i liked about the pandemic games that made them a little bit cheap and nasty but really good fun i think was 
everything you could get in was just on the field. So if you were just playing as a Wookiee and you ran up to like an ATST, you could just get in it and kidnap <laughs> it and stuff. And um, <laughs> it meant that like all the vehicle handling was kind of all over the place and it wasn't mega sophisticated. And I think as games have gotten more sophisticated, the idea is they don't give you that level of control or they don't make it that sandboxy because it just feels too disposable. It's somehow got to be a lot set piece here or controlled and things like that. Um, mm. And like I think like pandemic style of games was quite broad and messy it wasn't like best in class at anything but they were kind of great fun and so i sort of missed that mentality when a blockbuster game could feel quite double a in places but still sell mega well and like have quite mm. a big audience and now i feel like you'll never play actually like weirdly fortnite is like the closest you get to this where the shooting mechanics aren't so sophisticated it's got to be like look at the way we've done all these reload animations or you know the way these guns sound and stuff like that that sort of like Fortnite doesn't quite have that same level of like you know Battlefield or Call of Duty granular granularity. Um, mm. Yeah, I just miss things. Yeah, just like a bit broader, bit sillier. I kind of like miss that attitude. I guess it's, again a little bit vague, but um, yeah. Okay, do you want to read the next one, Matthew? Question: Having just seen the Mind's Eye teaser that would be playable inside everywhere, I'm just wondering your thoughts on what the gaming landscape might look like in ten years' time. How big a market share will these games inside hub game launchers become? That's from Melma. Yeah, ten years—that's that's tough to call. The current state of games now is that like games that were made when live service games were huge, or at least when Destiny was massive, are still kind of coming through, and people are being like, well. The world's moved on from that a little bit. The appetite isn't necessarily there. And so these games are either getting retooled or they're just coming out and not getting the, you know, maybe the reception that they would be if they were like a more guided sort of single player, you know, specific single player game. Um, Something like Jedi Survivor feels like actually quite a good idea of like something that still feels contemporary, which is, you know, a light sprinkling of Souls elements, but also super cinematic, big budget and stuff like that. Whereas these are games that are like, you know, loot numbers, things popping out and 8 million different guns you pick up. That that maybe feels like it's on the way out. Um, the everywhere thing. So I don't know. I don't know exactly what they've like said about what that is. Um, I get the impression that it is, it sounds like it's like two different games, like one game inside another game. They've just recently in the last couple of months done some sort of talking about it but i think they're trying to make like basically roblox for adults is my understanding yeah um and there's a potential that takes off because roblox has obviously taken off but i don't think it would ever replace traditional games and how they're like made and sold i mean Mm. i suppose you do if you do get to the point where these tools are so simple that you can build games and then you can kind of monetize them really simply that's something but i think there's also maybe the risk that um Epic beats them to the punch on this by making Unreal um, more and more accessible and more and more easy to use. I feel like that was part of what they were announcing at GDC, just to kind of bring those barriers down to making money with their platform. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know, but does it? But I don't. All I ever really care about is what the games are, and if the games are yeah. good, that's kind of what matters. And if it's, yeah, it's that's the thing. If if it, if it gets to the point where something like Everywhere becomes so big and people are like, you have to go and play this open world game inside this other game then I'd be curious for sure. But I think that we haven't really seen examples yet of that stuff catching fire. Like there hasn't necessarily been like a Dreams game where people are like, it's the best game of the year is Inside Dreams. I mean, you know, there's some amazing stuff in there, but it's still it's still considered part of Dreams. And I think that mm. that's maybe the barrier they have to overcome where it's like, oh, it doesn't matter what the platform is. You just have to go and play this thing that's inside this platform. Yeah. Um, and so that that's what 
that's the barrier they need to overcome basically the, the the idea of just a platform and owning a platform and and that being like your base of operations that feels like a pitch to like investors that's where you get all your startup money from that isn't like a pitch to me i, I couldn't give a fuck about that stuff like i just do not care i'm not interested if it makes a good game then yeah for sure but right now this this whole pitch is like just the whiff of like metaverse all these things it's, it's aimed at money men who like big ideas rather than people who are actually going to play these things yeah it has to the question has to be like what is exciting about it for the player that's what it always comes yeah. back to and like i think the reason people have brushed up against or like found themselves rejecting games as service type games is because they are they are built with shareholders in mind rather than gamers you know or players yeah. rather um so yes uh, that's that's my bleak answer to that one. Games will be fine in ten years, but I don't think there'll just be a bunch of like platform launches. That's just a yeah. The metaverse dream is just not one. It's not really ha- doesn't really have anything to do with video games. That's what it comes down to. And eventually, people are going to realise that I think, and uh, it'll either be boom or bust. Um, in ten years' time, Suicide, Suicide Squad releases to a six out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this next one. Uh, with the one-year birthday of the Steam Deck just passing, do you think it's been a wholly positive addition to gaming? It provides a baseline performance standard for developers to aim for, but by doing so, does it run the risk of losing what sets PC games apart from console games? I don't actually think that, but trying to avoid the chances of Samuel saying yes, next question. That's from Ryan Plugs. <laughs> what do you think so of Steam Deck? Cynically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not that I've called on it, but I haven't played my Steam Deck for quite a long time. Right. It was filling a gap when consoles weren't, interesting me but this year there's loads of console games i am interested in and i've just abandoned it so maybe not the best person to ask like it it hasn't disrupted gaming in the castle household you know it's there when we go on trips and things and that's very handy but like i've i've stopped playing it like in the house because i just don't need it and i'd much rather be playing games on the big tv if i had been playing all my weird little indie games like i promised i would um steam deck would probably you know i'd probably i'd prefer to play my steam deck over my pc but i'm just not in the mood for either yeah it's, it's funny because i haven't played it as much this year uh, the last game I really like properly played on it was Cult of the Lamb, and that was a game where I was like, there are, "There's like a whole crop of indie games." So I'm like, "Would I? I think I'd rather just play this on Steam Deck, so I don't risk there being performance issues on Switch." Which is right. That's kind of where it's shaken out a little bit. Where I'm not, I'm not sure what the Switch is capable of. You know, in some of these more complex looking games. So yeah, that's where I played Arcade Paradise, for example, as well. So it's sort of like it, and it sort of remains that. In some ways, like that game Shadows of Doubt, I bought that um, a couple of weeks ago, and I will, I've got that installed on um, Steam Deck. I've got Dredge installed on Steam Deck, so it has sort of defaulted to an indie machine. But that's partly because it was really cool to play Days Gone on there, and Days Gone looked absolutely amazing on there. But the battery life just runs low so quickly; it's almost not worth it. Um, it's too much of a penalty to stick with that experience, and that is obviously because you are asking it to do something quite quite drastic that is typically beyond a handheld device but as a like tinkerer's sort of handheld i think it's like absolutely retained its value and that's where i still kind of use it um an older boy told me it's really great for emulation i wouldn't know anything about that of course but um that side of things remains evergreen as a prospect especially when you think about all the other retro handhelds out there which as good as they are they don't have the same power that this has for the price that you Mm. pay so on that level i think it just it really um maintains its value i I would stick to the original point that i made on the steam deck podcast we did which is if you have a large um steam library already and you have like the mentality to enjoy the kind of like tinkering side of it this is it's worth buying but i don't know if i necessarily recommend it if you didn't have those things that's kind of where i stand on the steam deck matthew Mm -hmm. any further thoughts on psych odyssey 
Have you both watched it? Has Samuel's gig given him any new insights into development, marketing, business side of things? That's from Blinky. Yeah, so I actually only watched it what, about four or five episodes in the end. I meant to keep keep on with it, and I just haven't gone back because I think I went to GDC in the middle of it and then um, just haven't picked it up again. But you watched all mm. of it, didn't you, Matthew? Yeah, yeah, I watched it all in like a weekend. I really mainlined it. It's super interesting to see just how chaotic it is. I just like the soap opera drama of like all the different human personality types. Like I'm interested at people in the workplace anyway. I always think that's fascinating. Like games or not, it's intriguing to see sort of see power dynamics and how certain people handle different upsets. And particularly when you've got someone like Tim Schafer, who's a bit of a game developer celebrity, it's kind of interesting to see like his managing approach and or lack of in places. And I think the really interesting thing was it's very easy to talk about certain issues as being black and white in games development from the outside. This is bad. Everyone hates this. There's this crunch culture and, you know, topics like that. And uh, actually to hear kind of different perspectives from people inside and how people can slip into certain behaviours and how people can justify things to themselves and how they justify it to other people. And surprise, surprise, you know, these people are as complicated and messy as any people. And that just made me think about the amount of stuff that gets written about games development by journalists outside telling them like, oh, it should be this way or that way. And actually, you just can't really comprehend or understand how things are unless you're inside it. And I'm not inside it. You know, this gave us a little window into what it's like to be inside it. And even with that, you know, limited glimpse, you can't you came away thinking like, well, there's certain things I probably shouldn't be kind of opining on because I just don't have any fucking idea what it's like. Yeah, I sort of like I think that's kind of true of a lot of things that Twitter has a perspective on, but actually doesn't reflect what uh, being a human in the real world is like. And I think, yeah, that's, mm. that's one of them for sure. What I watched of it, I really enjoyed. Um, it is the first documentary I've watched where one of the participants has uh, unfollowed me on Twitter. So that was like a thing. <laughs> so I like the idea that I bored someone enough during the making of that documentary. I'm surprised I didn't do an episode on him unfollowing me, Matthew, where it's like, <laughs> and, and uh, oh man, this guy is still talking about fucking Star Wars. I've had enough of it. I'm noping out of this. Anyway, Psychonauts 2. So yeah, I, I liked it a bit. The, the second part of the question, yeah, I, it has given me new insights, but also I think that like... Um, it's crystallized a lot of things that I think I already sort of knew, but then, you know, it sort of challenges my assumptions a little bit. Yeah, you learn tons and you sort of like have a have a different understanding and a different empathy for sure. And yeah, yeah, super insightful. It's sort of like the the actual like learning about how games are made part of it is one of the main reasons I like doing it really. It's like, you know, understanding who all the different people are, what all the different moving parts are. Dear True Gamers... In your recent pod, you criticised reviews for showing later levels and bosses. Nintendo Power used to feature full guides and the magazine was beloved. I knew everything about Final Fantasy and Super Metroid before playing them, and they're my favourite games. I'm trying to understand your aversion to spoilers, so could you tell me which games you enjoyed less because you knew too much about them beforehand? That's from Robert August de Mayer. It's Games have like a more of a pronounced narrative element now, so when they get spoiled, you're a bit like... Well, I mean, like earlier, for example, like my aversion to spoiler for the third act of Jedi Survivor is there's some cool Star Wars shit in there that I should probably experience firsthand, so it's really obvious to me that I yeah. wouldn't want that spoiled. That's maybe a bit different to, like, um, here's how you get this this weapon in Super Metroid or whatever. You know, it's it's a slightly different situation, but I don't know. Some people, the problem with spoilers, some people are like, there's no such thing as spoilers, don't be a baby. And then there are people who are like, I don't like, th- like things spoiled. And we just seem so entrenched that, you know, I can't really convince someone otherwise. Yeah, 
I just like to experience something new, afresh. You know, it's exciting to me to not know what's going to happen in Tears of the Kingdom. I mean, maybe that's a more extreme one. Like, I really, I don't want to know anything about it. I don't want to know if it has the equivalent of the shrines from Breath of the Wild. I want to discover that for myself. I have no idea in my head of the shape of that game, and I don't really want to know it until I discover it for the first time. I think it's actually really obvious, this spoiler thing. I don't think it's, like, a controversial take. And I don't get the pushback against people being, like, you know, I don't want the episode, the key episode of Succession from the season spoiled for me like that. That shouldn't even take explaining. It's really obvious. Just don't, don't ruin the experience of someone else that you got to have. It's really, really simple. And yeah, um, yeah so that's that's why. Like, uh, yeah, you know, this. I do consider seeing parts of the world I've never seen before in Tears of the Kingdom to be a spoiler. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I go out of my way to avoid that stuff when I'm confronted with it. It's, it annoys me, and it, it's always annoyed me. And yeah, this and it's such a it's such a culture of someone's watched this the second it's gone live and then they've just blasted out what what's in it on like in a headline or whatever and I'm like, well, you know, I did want to experience that firsthand. Sue me. There's like, you know, it's it, it's it's the magic of it, isn't it? You wouldn't want a film ruined for you before you went into it. And games are a similar deal. The the kind of puzzlement at us not not wanting spoilers. Like I am equally as puzzled as like, what you'd be happy knowing. What happens in Final Fantasy VII before you play Final Fantasy VII? And why fucking play? It's a story. What a weird relationship to have with the story that you can just know how it ends and be content with that. Like, I, I equally put the question to you, I don't understand your stance, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. On that lightly confrontational note with a listener, the podcast comes to an end, Matthew. Um, again, ending on a high. That's what we do on this podcast. This is this this episode, This episode. is big bank holiday Monday ending energy. I hope that the episode hasn't come across as too sort of like downbeat. I'm definitely like in that headspace a bit where I have other stuff going on. So uh, I do apologise to listeners if this wasn't like mega jolly. Hopefully we'll shore it up enough for games Court Matthew, which we'll guarantee we'll record no. on a weekend morning, but we'll see. Next next week, Zelda episode. I'm, I'm going to be in the best possible mood I could be. I'm going to be playing a new Zelda game. I cannot wait. I'm looking so looking forward to talking about that game and playing it and having thoughts. It's going to be really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, next weekend taken care of. Very exciting. Okay, the podcast is over. If you'd like to support us financially and uh, keep the podcast going, patreon.com slash backpagepod, where you also get two additional podcasts a month from us one on games and one on pop culture uh, this month as i mentioned we did 50 things in games that make us go oh no and we're also doing the best tv episodes ever so it should be a good one and uh twitter.com slash backpage pod if you want to follow us matthew where can people get you on social media uh mr basil underscore pesto and i'm samuel w roberts and we'll be back next week with two giant men playing tears of the kingdom goodbye goodbye